So there are some differences in the airway anatomy in infants and kiddos versus that of adults. One of those is that the chest wall is more pliable. You'll learn a little bit more about the bones being more pliable in kiddos once we get into trauma and fractures and so forth. But their, their bones can bend a lot easier than that of an adult without snapping. So again, that's something for us to be concerned about when we talk about having that intact, intact chest wall for adequate ventilation to occur. They do have an increased reliance on the diaphragm than that of adults. So again, they don't have those accessory muscles, those intercostal muscles that are built up like adults do that we can help, that we use to help us breathe if we're having an increase in effort. They are solely, pretty much solely reliant on that diaphragm. Lungs are easily overinflated in artificial ventilations. That's something that we have to be very cautious of, especially in smaller kiddos, is when we are bagging patients, ventilating patients with the BVM, that we don't overinflate. Again, we could actually rupture, pop their lungs if we are too forceful or give too much air. And we need to pad under the patient's back and shoulders to maintain a neutral alignment of their airway. And there's an illustration of this coming up as well. So just, again, differences. Their airways are also more narrow as well. Again, that makes them more easily obstructed than that of an adult. So kiddos, again, their heads are proportionately larger. Their occipital region, that back portion of their skulls, are proportionately larger as well. So if we lay a kid completely just flat on the ground, their head is going to want to rock forward. And that motion alone, just rocking that head ever so slightly forward, can be enough to cause an airway obstruction in the patient. So anytime we're dealing with an unresponsive child, make sure that that airway remains open, we should pad underneath their shoulders and torso. That's going to keep that head rocked back a little bit. Again, that's going to help us keep that airway open, ensuring that that tongue is not causing that airway obstruction. Kiddos also have limited oxygen reserves. So they don't have as much oxygen remaining left in their body. So when they start having respiratory issues, again, they don't have those reserves to burn through, so they're going to go hypoxic quick. Not only that, they have higher metabolic rates than we do as adults. Their metabolism is faster, meaning that they have a greater oxygen demand as well. They're going to burn through what little oxygen they have left quicker than we would as well. Again, all leading to them getting hypoxic very quick. And when we're dealing with kiddos, hypoxia is the most common cause of a cardiac arrest. If a kid is in cardiac arrest due to a medical condition, very high probability that it's due to a respiratory cause. Kids' hearts, unless they were born with a birth defect, congenital uh, heart defect, their hearts are not going to be the issue. They're still young, fresh, in good working order. So again, a pediatric patient goes into cardiac arrest and it's due to a medical cause, it's very high probability it's, it's a respiratory cause that caused them to go into cardiac arrest. 
anatomical features in infants and children that causes them to deteriorate more rapidly than adults. Again, they can go, they will go from respiratory distress, failure to arrest very quickly. So again, airway assessment, making sure that we're assessing that airway, making sure that airway is open is going to be very crucial for us during our assessment, because it doesn't matter what else we do. If the airway is not open, patient's going to die. And when we talk about primary assessment, chapter 13, primary assessments comprised of the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. Those are the first things that we check on every single patient we're dealing with. So airway assessment, airway function and consideration. Again, no matter what that patient's condition is, the airway must always remain paid. If we don't fix and maintain an open airway, the patient is going to die very quickly. So that is oftentimes our highest priority. Airway may be obstructed by foreign bodies, patients choking on something, or from injuries as well. Those injuries can cause swelling in that airway or bleeding into that airway as, as well, causing that obstruction. And the mental status of a patient typically correlates with the status of the airway. For if the patient is conscious, most of the time we can assume that the airway is going to be paid. I can look at all y'all right now very quickly, assess 10 of y'all in two seconds and know that everybody's airway in here is clear and open. It's paid just by monitoring and noting their mental status. It's the patients that have altered mental status that are more susceptible to airway obstruction, aspiration, getting something into their lungs that shouldn't be there, blood, vomit, foreign bodies, et cetera. Again, and it's these patients with an altered LOC that we tend to have to spend a little bit more time assessing that airway to ensure that it is patent. Again, airway can be blocked by injuries such as burns, and soft tissue injuries. This guy right here, he's got partial thickness or second degree burns to his face. Doesn't look too significant though, but one thing that we are always worried about with burns is, it, especially to the face, is if his airway got burned. If his airway got burned, what's that burn going to do? It's going to begin to swell. It's going to obstruct completely that airway if it's bad enough. So again, this may not look too dramatic, too life-threatening right here, but again, a huge concern is going to be his airway for us. And right here as well, we got major trauma to the face. We have bleeding that could be flowing into that airway, causing an obstruction. We could have broken teeth that is causing an obstruction as well, or swelling or deeper trauma to the larynx itself that we all would have to worry about causing an airway obstruction. So table 10-1 in your book are indications or signs of an open airway. So when assessing things that we need to be feeling and looking for, air can be felt and heard moving in and out of the mouth and nose. Think back to your CPR. We do that head, tilt, chin lift, or we open that airway. We put our face right down there close to the patient's nose and mouth, looking down the chest. One of the things we're doing is we're seeing if we can feel air moving in and out on our cheek or hear it with our ears as well. If your patient is speaking in full sentences or they're speaking with very little difficulty, we, I can ensure you 
that their airway is patent. My airway is patent because I'm sitting here rambling on and on and on. In order for me to talk, I have to have a good open airway. Other things to note, if the patient is able to speak, their sound of their voice is normal. If they sound extremely hoarse, again, that may indicate some type of swelling is occurring somewhere, typically the larynx. Ten two is signs of a blocked or inadequate airway. If we notice any of these, we need to take immediate action to try to correct it. If we have abnormal upper airway sounds, things like strider. Strider is a harsh, high-pitched sound that is heard upon inhalation. That typically include it is caused by swelling at the larynx or choking on a, from a foreign body airway obstruction. If the patient has snoring respirations, it sounds like the patient is snoring. That's an indication that the tongue is blocking the airway. Crowing sounds like a, uh, a crow cawing. Uh, again, typically that's uh, swelling at the larynx. We hear gurgling respirations. Gurgling respirations indicates fluid is in the airway. And anytime for like testing or on an actual patient, you hear gurgling respirations, your next immediate action is always to suction the patient's airway. If we have an awake patient that is unable to speak, again, that's an indication that they are choking on something or have some type of obstruction. Evidence of a foreign body airway obstruction, tongue, food, vomit, blood, or teeth in the upper airway, mouth, or nose. Or if we have swelling in the mouth, tongue, or oropharynx as well. Again, that may be obstructing that airway, not allowing any air to get past that swelling. So breaking down some of these abnormal upper airway sounds. Again, snoring respirations. Airway is partially obstructed by the tongue. And again, it sounds like your patient is snoring. Again, that indicates that the tongue is causing a partial obstruction. It's still a partial obstruction, meaning that we immediately need to take action to correct or fix snoring respirations. How we correct that, generally, we can do that with very simple manual maneuvers. Doing the head tilt chin lift maneuver, which is simply just rocking that head back, that typically is all that's needed to stop choking, res uh, sorry, snoring res uh, respirations. Crowing respirations sounds like a crow cawing when muscles around the larynx spasm and narrow the opening to the trachea. Air is rushing through restricted passages causing that sound. Again, gurgling respiration sounds like gargling indicates the presence of blood, vomitus, or secretions, or other liquid in the airway. Again, gurgling respirations indicates a liquid is blocking the airway. And again, our next immediate course of action when we hear gurgling respirations is to clear it. How we clear liquid is with suctioning. We'll talk more about suctioning. Strider is harsh, high-pitched sounds heard during inspiration. It's very characteristic of a significant upper airway obstruction from swelling in the larynx. 
may also be heard if the obstruction is from a foreign body as well, where the patient is choking on something. So it's sometimes in order to assess the airway, first thing we would have to do is actually open the patient's mouth. So we must open the mouth of an unresponsive patient to assess the airway. How we can open a patient's mouth is to use a crossed fingers technique to open the mouth, and there's a picture of that coming up. Once that mouth is open, now we can assess the airway better, or we can take actions to relieve an obstruction, suction, etc., foreign bodies. So again, the cross finger technique, you put your, we're above the patient's head, you put your thumb on their lower teeth, your index finger on their upper teeth, and you're just crossing them to open, pry, basically pry that patient's mouth open. You should not meet very much resistance doing that. It should be a very easy technique. Other ways that we open the airway. Once that mouth is open, now we can take steps to open the actual airway. Easiest way to do it is we're going to try manual maneuvers first. Manual maneuvers include the head tilt chin lift maneuver again, which is just rocking that head back, or it's the jaw thrust maneuver. And we'll do the jaw thrust maneuver on suspected spinal injuries because we don't have to rock that head back, meaning that we don't have to manipulate that smart spine to perform a jaw thrust maneuver. So head tilt chin lift is done on medical patients. Jaw thrust maneuver is typically done on trauma patients where we suspect the possibility of a spinal injury. Other air, uh, techniques to open an airway. Again, we're going to suction the airway. And the suctioning of the airway is to remove fluid or very small particles from the airway. If it's much larger than very small, the suctioning is not going to be effective. It's too large, can't suck it up. And we also have mechanical airways at our disposable at you as well, maybe also referred to as basic adjuncts, airway adjuncts. We have an oropharyngeal airway known as an OPA, and then we have a nasopharyngeal airway or an NPA. And the purpose of an OPA or an NPA is to keep the tongue from blocking the airway. And again, the tongue is the number one cause of an airway obstruction and an unresponsive adult patient. So again, first thing that we're going to start with and try is going to be manual maneuvers. So the most common one that we use is the head tilt chin lift maneuver. Again, we use this only when there is no spinal injury Suspected. If we suspect a spinal injury, rocking that head back is manipulating the spine too much and can worsen that spinal injury. Again, used in unresponsive patients, those that are in cardiac arrest, we can use the head tilt chin lift maneuver as well. And again, we typically do this first. First thing we're going to do is a simple maneuver. Then we're going to supplement that simple maneuver with a mechanical airway, OPAs, NPAs, or if that head tilt chin lift maneuver is not doing anything, we may move quicker to that OPA or NPA as well. But 
as a general rule, if we're doing the head tilt chin lift or a jaw thrust, we need to either insert an OPA or an MPA as well. And the head tilt chin lift is just like it sounds. You place one head on the head, forehead, one hand on the chin, and you're just rocking that head back. And again, that's going to prevent that tongue from slipping and folding backwards, covering and blocking that airway. If we're doing the head tilt chin lift maneuver in infants and children, we just need to be very cautious about overextension of the neck. We can actually rock that head too far back to the point where we're actually kinking off that airway, totally blocking the airway. So just be careful that we're not overextending the neck. And again, small kiddos, go ahead and pat underneath the shoulders and the back as well. It's going to make it easier for us. And again, it's going to put them in that more inline position as a starting point. So again, on an infant, exact same technique. Again, we just want to be cautious that we're not overextending that neck. Another position is the, we can put a patient in is known as the sniffing position. And there's a picture of this. Sniffing position is a neutral position in which the neck is slightly flexed and the head is extended. So the, the neck is slightly flexed and the head is extended. Sniffing position may also be referred to as the ear to sternal notch position. And to achieve this position, the opening of the ear is lined up horizontally with the patient's sternal notch. For inserting things like advanced airways, uh, biads or blindly inserted airway devices, so forth, the sniffing position is oftentimes going to be preferred. So there is that sniffing position. Again, the ear to sternal notch position. So we want that earlobe, that ear, directly in line with that sternum. So there it is on a child. There it is on an adult patient. But what happens if we have a bariatric or a morbidly obese patient? That is nowhere near the position that we want that want them in for a sniffing position. So in order to get this patient in a sniffing position, we're going to have to what we refer to as ramp the patient, which basically means we're going to shove this whatever we can underneath them like this to build a little ramp to get him in that sniffing position. And again, for things like intubating, it's going to be a lot easier to intubate a patient in the sniffing position than it is like that. UMCMS, trying to put people in sniffing position, we placed our airway bags, whatever we had underneath them to try to get them in that proper position. So again, that's the head tilt chin lift maneuver. We use it on patients where we do not suspect a spinal injury. If we are dealing with a major trauma or a patient that we do suspect has a spinal injury, we're not going to use the jaw thrust, I mean the, sorry, the head tilt chin lift, we're going to use the jaw thrust maneuver instead. And the benefit of the jaw thrust is it allows the neck to remain in a neutral inline position. We don't have to manipulate that spine to open the patient's airway. 
However, the big downside to a jaw thrust, it is much more difficult and harder to maintain due to fatigue on the fingers and the hand. It does take some brute force to keep that airway open using a jaw thrust maneuver. So again, we're going to initially start with that jaw thrust maneuver, but we need to quickly supplement an OPA or an MPA along with it to where we don't have to just sit there and hold that jaw thrust the entire time. Once that OPA or MPA is in there, that's doing the job of that jaw thrust, so we don't have to sit there and hold it. Again, how we do that jaw thrust is we will put our hands on the patient, we will get our index fingers on both, both hands, and we're going to find that curvature of the jaw, and we're going to lift that curvature of the jaw upward towards the seal. Again, we got our hands down here on the curvature of the jaw, and we're just lifting it upward. Again, we can do a jaw thrust on an infant as well. Again, does, it's not going to require as much force, and their anatomy is going to be a lot smaller as well. Follow the basic procedures if we're dealing doing jaw thrust in a kiddo. And you know, we'll, you know, we have a couple of mannequins that you can perform a jaw thrust on. So again, something we will practice in class. So positioning the patient for airway control. One way we can position the patient on the stretcher for transport if we're worried about the airway, especially with vomitus or bleeding or so forth, is that we can put the patient in the recovery position. Remember, that's laying typically on their left side. We can use if the patient has altered mental status and is at risk of aspiration. Again, aspiration is breathing a foreign substance into the lungs. Again, by laying them on their left side, if they do vomit, that, that vomit is going to rush out of their mouth because of gravity instead of just sitting on the back of their throat if they're laying on their back. However, if the patient does have a suspected spinal injury, we cannot put the patient on their side. They have to be laying supine. Or if we're having to ventilate a patient with a BVM, they have to be on be supine as well. We cannot leave them on their back or on their side, I'm sorry, and bag them at the same time. So if the patient must be supine, special care must be taken to prevent aspiration if vomiting or secretions occur. So we just constant monitoring, always assessing that airway frequently. If the patient does begin to vomit, make sure we have suctioning ready to go or we can log roll the patient in that instance if they do begin to vomit and then roll them back on their back after they're done. And again, there is the recovery position or the left lateral recumbent position. Again, this is can be very beneficial to help clear and maintain an open airway if that patient does begin to vomit. Again, that vomit will not just sit and collect from the back of their throat where they're aspirating it with each breath. <clears throat> so suctioning the airway. Suctioning is used to remove liquids, fluid, uh, liquids, food particles, or other objects from the mouth and airway. And again, when we hear gurgling respirations, that is our indication to suction the airway. And again, airway always has priority. So again, if you ever read a test question, 
And it states, you auscultator, you hear gurgling respiration. What do you do next? Your answer should be immediately suction the airway. Some suction equipment is not effective in removing thick vomitus or solid objects such as teeth, foreign bodies, or food from the airway. Whatever we're suctioning up has to be smaller, can fit through that suction tubing. So if it's something pretty large or extremely thick, suctioning may not be able to clear it. So anytime that we are performing suctioning, we do need to be following standard precautions. Remember, standard precautions is that we treat every patient like they have a communicable disease, whether they do or not. If it's something coming leaking out of the body, if it's something wet coming from the patient's body, we do not ever want to touch it with bare skin. So bare minimum standard precautions includes wearing gloves and also hand washing at the end of every single patient contact. Depending on the procedure, we may up our standard precautions. Suctioning may be one of those procedures where we need more than just gloves. So if there's a lot of vomitus or blood in that airway and the patient is spewing it out, we may want to wear outwear. If you get blood, vomitus, mainly blood, but anything in your eyes from the patient, that is considered an exposure. You can catch a communicable disease by getting blood in your eye. So protective eyewear can help. You may want to wear a mask or some type of face protection. Again, gloves. If we're touching a patient, we should be wearing gloves at all times. For dealing with a airborne communicable disease or droplet, N95 or HEPA masks or TB, COVID-19, we want to wear an N95 as well. So the suction equipment that we're going to be using to clear a patient's airway, different types out there. Most EMS services have at least two suction units. One of them is going to be permanently mounted in the ambulance. Another type is going to be a portable suction that we can bring to patient side inside the residence, on the street, wherever that patient is. When we're dealing with suction, it's important that the it's able to generate enough vacuum and airflow to actually suck out vomitous blood, liquids, etc. to clear the airway. You also, along with the suction, the vacuum itself, you also need wide bore thick tubing, a collection bucket or bottle, and a water supply, typically sterile water, to cleanse out our equipment after we suck up, especially thick secretions as well. So there's an example of a ambulance mounted suction unit. Again, the, all this part right here, including the tubing that connects to the bucket that is non-disposable equipment, that remains there throughout the entire time. From the bucket onward, including all of the tubing and the actual device that we're sticking in the patient's mouth, that's all single patient use. You use it one time, you throw the entire thing away. So this, again, this is ambulance mounted. So there's going to be a switch typically up here somewhere on the action area that we can flip a switch and that's going to turn on our vacuum. This one is adjustable. We can turn this dial to make sure that we're generating enough vacuum as well to clear that airway. There's an example of a portable unit. 
again, basically it's the exact same bucket, tubing, and tips. This one's just battery power that we bring into the patient with us. This one also has a switch probably over here. And this one also has a dial on it that we can control the amount of suctioning that we're providing. Most EMS services, if they're smart, is these portable suctions and your wall-mounted or your ambulance-mounted should take the same suction bucket because that reduces the amount of supplies you have to buy. So again, most people, it's the same bucket, same equipment that we're using. You can also have a hand-powered suction device. This is how we generate the vacuum is you grab this handle right here and you're just squeezing it and that should be creating a vacuum. These devices absolutely suck and I don't mean that in a good way. These are absolutely terrible. They do not provide enough suction in most cases. I don't know of any service that actively carries these right now. Other types of equipment that we're going to need. We're going to need the tip that actually is getting inserted into the patient. There's two different, there's two main different types of tips. We have a rigid catheter. That rigid catheter is generally only used for suctioning out the mouth and deeper into the oral pharynx going in through the mouth. We can also have a soft catheter can be used to suction the nose. We typically, for us, especially for adults, we don't worry too much about the suctioning the nose. But if we wanted to suction the nose, you could use a soft catheter. Or the, another thing that these soft catheters are used for is endotracheal suctioning or deep suctioning if the patient has a tracheostomy or something along those lines. So again, there's a picture of what this, these two different tips look like. So the rigid tip, more commonly would probably be referred to as a yonker tip. And then we have a soft suction tip. And again, for us as basics and, any, and just in EMS in general, we tend to use rigid suction tips more frequently than we do the soft suction. So the technique that we're going to use in order to suction, we need to assemble and turn on the suction unit. And this should be pre-assembled. Once we use the suction, we throw it away. While we're cleaning up our truck, we should reassemble the suctioning so it's already ready for us to go the next time that we need it. We need to turn on the suction unit. We also need to check and verify that it is actually providing a vacuum before we try to insert it in the patient's mouth as well. We're going to measure and insert the catheter. So if we're using the yonker, the rigid tip, we want to ensure that we're not going in too deep with the yonker. So we need to measure it. How we measure a yonker to ensure proper depth is we measure it from the corner of the mouth. Sorry, my camera is mirrored and it's driving, it's making me screw up. But from the corner of the mouth to the earlobe, following that curvature of that yonker. From there, we don't want to go any deeper past that point. When we are suctioning an airway, we only suction coming out of the airway, never inserting it. So we're going to go to that predetermined depth without suction. Once we're at that predetermined depth, now we generate that vacuum and suction coming out. If we suction going in, we'll be drawing the liquids, the vomitus, the blood, whatever the hell it is, 
towards the airway. We want to draw everything out away from the airway. So we only suction coming out. As a general rule, we do not suction for longer than 15 seconds of an oral airway. So suctioning the mouth, it's no longer than 15 seconds. For infants and kiddos, it should be no longer than five seconds. After we're done, especially if we're dealing with like thick secretions, we should rinse the catheter out. We do that with either sterile water or sterile saline, not tap water. So we suction a cup of water up as well. That's just going to clear our tubing and our yonker or our front or soft tip suctioning to ensure that it's ready to use if we have to use it again on this patient. So this, the skills, the steps of suction. Again, make sure the suction unit is properly assembled and turned on. Again, this is generating or creating a vacuum. So you'll know, hard to see, but the suction lid can be separated from the bucket, and there are multiple openings and holes on top of this lid. All of those holes have to be covered. That lid has to be fitted on there properly, or air is going to escape through that opening, and it's not going to generate a vacuum. So we have to ensure that the lid's on tight. All these excess openings are closed off as well. Our tubing's hooked up. Again, we're going to measure the depth of insertion. So from the corner of the mouth to the earlobe. So we're going to mark that depth right about there, and we're not going to go any deeper. What I like to do is I like to mark it, and I'll grab that yonker at that depth. So now I'm holding it as deep as I'm going to go. And then when I insert it, I go to my fingers. Open the airway, we're going to insert the yonker. And again, we're going to go in without generating the suction. And then we're going to apply suction as you withdraw the catheter. So it's again the only suction coming out no longer than 15 seconds. And as we're coming out, suctioning, we're going to kind of go side to side, circles, whatever we can to try to get as much out in that 15 seconds as we can. So with these yonkers, there are a couple of different types out there. Some of them have a hole on the back of this yonker right here. There's just an opening on it. So as long as our finger or thumb is not covering that hole in the yonker, if our thumb is off of it, it's not generating a vacuum. All that air is escaping from that hole and it's not creating a vacuum. So if your yonker has a hole in it, you can go ahead and have your suction turned on and running as we're inserting it. We get to our predetermined depth, place your thumb over the hole, that generates the vacuum and suction coming out. Some of these manufacturers do not have holes in them anymore. The ones UMC EMS carries on their truck do not have holes in it. So because it doesn't have a hole in it for proper technique by the textbook, you wouldn't, you would insert it to the proper depth. Then we would have to turn on the machine to generate the vacuum and come out, come out that way. Does that make sense? For by the textbook, we only suction coming out. We never suction going in. So some special considerations when we are performing suctioning. If their mouth is just completely full with blood or whatever liquid is, we're not going to be able to suction it out all out in one go. 
So what we should do is roll them onto their side. Again, let uh, gravity help us here. We can even do finger sweeps and try to sweep as much of the the bigger stuff out, then suction while they're on their side. After we get that airway cleared, if they need to be on their back, then we can roll them back on their back. But again, spinal injuries, we do have to be cautious. If they're on a board, we'll just rotate the entire board. But it, it, we can clear an airway much faster by turning them to their side and suctioning than we would keeping them on their back and suctioning. And if it's just copious amounts, if alternate 15 seconds of suctions with minutes of ventilation, or two minutes of ventilations for copious brothy secretions. Now, if we're seeing brothy, like pink or blood tinged sputum coming up, that means it's coming directly from the lung. So every time we ventilate that patient, we're going to get more of that fluid or that gunk out. So again, if that's the case, we suction it out, breathe, ventilate for them for two minutes, then we go right back, suction them out, and keep repeating that process over and over again. And again, this is a skill for the class. We will practice that in class as well. Airway adjuncts. These are used in conjunction with those manual airway maneuvers. So the head tilt chin lift or the jaw thrust, we can also supplement an adjunct as well. That includes the oropharyngeal airway or the OPA and a nasopharyngeal airway or the NPA. The hard plastic ones, these are the OPAs. The softer plastic, those are NPAs. So we'll start with the OPA. OPA airways are used in patients who are unresponsive and do not have a gag reflex, and that is going to be very important to remember. In order for us to insert an OPA, the patient cannot have a gag reflex. If the patient has a gag reflex, we insert the OPA, guess what we're going to do? We're going to stimulate that gag reflex, and that patient's going to possibly vomit on us. So again, they have, they do, they cannot have a gag reflex before we insert an OPA. How do we determine if a patient has an, a gag reflex? Judgment call in many cases. People say that you can, if their eyes are closed, you can run your fingers across their eyelashes. And if you see their eyes flicker back and forth underneath their eyelashes, that means they still have a gag reflex. If they don't have any movement of the eyes, that means they don't have a gag reflex. Again, other than that, it's it's going to be, and again, there's been studies that have shown that's not probably the most accurate. Other than that, it's just going to be your judgment call based on past experience. How unresponsive does that patient seem? If they're completely unresponsive, they probably don't have a gag reflex. If they're responding to a painful stimulus, then it's iffy they probably do have a gag reflex. A lot of it is just going to come down to judgment and field experience. So with OPAs, the rigid device holds the tongue away from the back of the airway. Again, that's what its main purpose is, is to prevent the tongue from causing a partial airway obstruction. Also, we're inserting a rigid thing into the patient's mouth. It also gives us a better pathway for suctioning the airway as well. We can suction that airway with an OPA still in the mouth, no problem. Again, when we're dealing with the o OPAs, Attempted to insert an OPA in a patient with a gag reflex may trigger vomiting. So if we, again, if we're trying to insert it, we don't think they have a gag reflex, 
We try to insert it and they start gagging, immediately pull the OPA out. Don't try to force it past that gag reflex. And sizing is going to be very important with an OPA. Too big, too small, it's not going to accomplish what we need it to, and it can actually cause damage inside that, that airway or that mouth. So we have to make sure that we're using the appropriate size. So again, sizing is critical. OPA that is too long can push the epiglottis over the opening of the larynx, causing an airway obstruction. So it could possibly do the exact opposite of we want what we want it to do. It can actually cause an airway obstruction. Too short, the device can be ineffective, may cause trauma to the oral pharynx as well. So again, you can see there are multiple, multiple sizes of these OPAs. Big adults right here, all the way down to little teeny tiny face. They make probably smaller than that, that can go on a neonate as well. So again, gotta make sure that we got the right size. So how we measure the size for an OPA is the exact same way that we measure our suctioning yonker. So it's from the corner of the ear to the, the sorry, the earlobe to the corner of the mouth. You want the size that is closest to that gap. Just like you see here, corner of the mouth to that earlobe, perfect size. So once we get the correct size, now we have to insert it. When we insert it, we insert the OPA upside down initially, and then we're going to rotate it as we go in. We do this because if we inserted it the opposite way, we, there's more likelihood we're going to push the tongue and pull that tongue back. So by inserting it upside down, we're clearing the tongue first and then rotating it in a proper position. So it has that the curve to it. You want the point of that curve pointed towards the roof of the mouth. So again, it's going in upside down initially. We're going to insert it. As we're inserting it, we're going to also rotate it 180 degrees to now where that curve is going to be pointing downward. Again, we're doing that to avoid pressing, folding that tongue back. And we continue the insertion until the OPA, the flanges on top, are resting against the patient's teeth. And if we sized it properly, should go in pretty easily. And that's what that OPA is going to look like once it's properly inserted. Again, you can see it's holding that tongue up, preventing that tongue from relaxing and covering that opening to the airway. So that's how we insert an OPA on an adult. If we're dealing with infant and children, we do have to do a little bit different technique. We do not insert it upside down and then rotate it for the smaller kiddos. So it has to go in its in inline position. So in order to do that, again, in order to ensure that the tongue is not going to get in the way, we have to manually displace the tongue. So use a tongue depressor, a laryngoscope blade, hold the tongue out of the way while we insert that OPA, and again, it goes in line. If we ever have to remove an OPA, say we inserted the OPA because the patient was unresponsive, we gave them 
we treated him, we magically corrected him, and now he's starting to wake up and he starts gagging on that OPA. Well, we need to remove the OPA. So if the patient begins gagging or coughing, again, remove the device immediately. How we remove the device is following the natural curve. We do not rotate it or twist it coming out. So in order to remove it, we just grab the OPA and we follow the curvature. So it's just going to kind of pull it straight out, basically, and follow that curvature. And we may stimulate that gag reflex coming out as well. So he's coughing, he's choking on it. We remove it. It may be just enough to cause him to start vomiting right after the fact. Key points on the OPA, never force the device. Again, you should not meet major resistance. You should slide in there pretty easily. If we are meeting resistance, don't try to force it in, remove it. We may try to use an NPA at that point now as well. So if it, it's not going down, it's not sliding into proper position easy, try to investigate why. Is it hitting something? Is there an obstruction? What's going on? And if we can't figure it out, again, we have a backup. We can go to our NPA. Again, sizing is crucial. Make sure that we measure and pick the correct size. And again, we use this for patients that do not have a gag reflex. If they have a gag reflex, we can cause gagging and cause the patient to vomit. All right, so again, OPAs are tend to be a kind of our go-to. If OPA is not an option because the patient has a gag reflex, now we're, we're going to go to our backup, which is our NPA, nasopharyngeal airway. OPA is going through the mouth. NPA is going through the nose. An NPA is a curved hollow tube of soft plastic, of rubber, and it has a bevel on it as well. The use of an MPA is indicated in patients whom an oral airway cannot be inserted because of something like they have clenched teeth, facial injuries, and those unable to tolerate an OPA because they have a gag reflex. So since we're inserting this through their nose, it is far less likely to stimulate the gag reflex than it is going through the mouth. So again, OPAs are, are, tend to be our preferred method. If the patient can tolerate an uh, uh, OPA, we go OPA. If they can't tolerate an OPA because they have a gag reflex, because they have clenched teeth or major trauma, now we can always fall back on our NPAs. Again, can be used on patients who are not fully responsive and needs assistance in maintaining an open airway. Most commonly, it's going to be with those with snoring respirations. They have snoring respirations, still have a gag reflex. NPA is going to be our, our route. In my career, the most common type of patient that I've used an NPA on, and this is just from my experience, me personally, is severely intoxicated drunks. They're severely intoxicated with snoring respirations, can't keep their eyes open, but have a gag reflex. OPA is not an option. They're snoring. I have to fix the snoring. So I insert, throw an NPA in there. Again, should not, NPA should not be used in patients with suspected fractures of the base of the skull or severe facial trauma. 
And the reason being, in order for this NPA to go to the correct spot, it has to follow an intact nasal passageway. So if we have suspected skull fracture or mid-face fractures, now we can't ensure that the that passageway of that nasal cavity is intact. And it is possible, and there's been uh, CTs, I actually have one on my phone, not of an NPA, but of an uh, NG tube, where if there's a crack in the skull right where that NPA is going to pass through, it can go into that crack and actually work its way into the cranium. The cranium. So again, suspected skull fractures, basilar skull fractures, or mid-face trauma, severe mid-face trauma, NPAs are not going to be indicated. We will not use them. And just like with OPAs, just like with suctioning, sizing of an NPA is important. We have to make sure that we are using the correct size. So again, they may come in different sizes such as this, or they may have one basic adult size, but it has an adjustable uh, lip right there that you can move down to ensure that we're not inserting this too deep. So the technique for inserting an NPA. Again, sizing is important. We need to ensure that we're going the correct length. So we're going to measure the length. Instead of going from the corner of the mouth to the nose, we're going to go from the tip, I'm sorry, the corner of the mouth to the ear. We're going to go from the tip of the nose to the earlobe, allowing for that little natural curvature in that NPA. So NPA goes into the nose, so we measure from the nose. OPAs go from the mouth, so we measure from the mouth. So we found the correct size. <clears throat> Before we insert it, you're going to have to lubricate an NPA. OPAs typically do not need to be lubricated because your mouth has enough lubrication and it'll spit. NPAs, on the other hand, is not the case. We will cause trauma, nosebleeds, very painful if we do not lubricate an NPA. So make sure that we lubricate. And anytime that we use lubricant in pre-hospital setting, it's always in medicine in general. It's already always water-based lubricant. And KY is one of the most popular brands. So we're going to, after we get it all lubed up, ready to go, we're going to look at the patient's nostrils. We're going to pick whichever nostril we think is the largest. And we're going to try to insert the NPA through the largest nostril. As we're inserting it, we also want to make sure that the bevel, the open end right here, that's the bevel. We want the opening of that bevel facing the septum or the middle of the nose. So just turn it whichever way it needs to, to where that bevel is facing the septum. And now we're just going to shove it in. Again, we're it's going we're gonna to meet a little bit of resistance, but it shouldn't be extremely hard to force it in. Again, don't force it. If we're meeting a lot of resistance, don't continue there and continue to sit there and try to shove it, shove it in. <clears throat> Properly inserted NPA, again, that's giving us still a clear passageway for that air to enter the lungs. Key points in NPA. Again, never force the device. Again, you're going to meet a little bit of resistance, but it shouldn't be too much. Insertion may be painful for the patient, so always use lubricant. Most of the time, if we're inserting an NPA, they're going to have altered LOC or confusion. I've had, again, number one patients I've ever used is almost drunks. I've had patients that were seemed to be completely unresponsive, drunk, snoring respirations. 
I've done deep, deep sternal rubs on the patient as hard as I could and couldn't get any response from the patient. As soon as I go in one inch with that NPA, they start coming around and waking up a little bit. So it is very painful for your patient. If the patient will not tolerate the device, if they wake up and they try to pull it out or they're just freaking out, just remove the device. Again, make sure that we measure, get the correct size. And again, it should not be used with patients with suspected fractures at the base of the skull or severe facial trauma. Okay, so that's how we assess the airway, and that's techniques that we use to ensure that the airway remains paid. Again, first thing is we want to make sure the airway is paid. If the airway is not patent, we have to take steps to make it pain. Open the airway, simple airway maneuvers. If they have gurgling respirations, indicates fluid on the in the airway, we immediately suction that airway. And then we also talked about our adjuncts, OPAs and MPAs, that can be used to help ensure and maintain that open airway as well. So any questions on the airway or the devices? And again, all of these we will practice in class as well. Okay, if there's no questions, I think this is probably the best place to go ahead and take our last break for the morning. So let's go ahead and break until 11 o'clock. We'll come back at 11 and finish up the morning session. So the next part is after we ensure that the airway is clear, is patent, now we're going to move on to assess that the patient is breathing. And if he is breathing, is the patient breathing adequately? So assessment of breathing. After establishing a patent airway, assess the adequacy of the patient's breathing. Inadequate breathing, if the patient's not breathing well enough on their own, that's going to lead to poor gas exchange in the alveoli and inadequate oxygenation. So in turn, we're depriving the cells of the needed oxygen. And again, the two things that we are looking at to determine if a patient is breathing adequately or not on their own, the two main things is the rate of their respiratory, their respirations, their breathing, and the volume of each breath or tidal volume. So rate and tidal volume are the two main things that we're assessing. So the relationship of volume and rate in depth in breathing assessment so the relationship between the volume of air breathed in, the respiratory rate, and the volume of air that reaches the alveoli is critical in determining if the patient is breathing adequately or not. And remember, we have dead space air. Not all of the air that we breathe in reaches the alveoli. Some of it stays in the trachea, for example, and is not available for gas exchange. So tidal volume and minute volume. Tidal volume is the amount of air moved in and out with each breath. So that's tidal volume. Minute volume is the amount of air that's moved in and out in one minute. So it's a function of both the respiratory rate and tidal volume. So how we determine minute volume, the formula is tidal volume times rate. So it's a function of both the respiratory rate and tidal volume. And an average uh, adult patient is five to eight liters per minute 
is what is considered normal. And again, in the pre-hospital setting, we have no way of getting a numerical value on this. It's all based on our judgment. So again, minute volume, the formula to determine minute volume is tidal volume times how fast they're breathing per minute. So if we have a change in either the tidal volume or the rate, that's directly going to affect minute volume. We also have another term, which is alveolar ventilation. Alveolar ventilation is the amount of air that's breathed in, again, that actually reaches the alveoli and is available for gas exchange to occur. And again, that dead space air that we've talked about previously is air that enters the airways but does not reach the alveoli for gas exchange to occur. And again, that dead space air, the amount of it does not change when tidal volume decreases. And rapid respirations, if it's too fast to a point, it can actually decrease tidal volume as well. So assessing the adequacy or that assessing for adequate breathing. We look at rate, rhythm, quality, and depth of breathing. And we assess these by four different mechanisms or assessment techniques. We're going to look, we're going to listen, we're going to feel, and we can also auscultate. And auscultating means listening with a stethoscope. So all of these can give us clues about how well the patient is breathing. Again, in order for us to make that determination whether we ventilate a patient with a BBM or not, the two main things we look at is rate and tidal volume. So looking, inspecting. We inspect the chest for injuries, expansion, retractions, excessive use of neck muscles, whatever the case may be. We're looking, we're watching that patient breathe to determine are they breathing adequately? Are they having labored respirations, etc. We can do this by just looking overall, looking at the patient's general appearance as well how the patient is presenting themselves, how they look when we first lay eyes on them, that can give us a good indication about the adequacy of their breathing. Again, I can look at all of y'all right now and know for sure that y'all's airways are patent. At the same time, y'all are all awake, engaged. You're not having, your breathing is also adequate from just at a glance as well. We also wanna to try to determine if the breathing pattern is regular or irregular, normal breathing, the gaps in between each breath should be roughly the same. If it's having an abnormal pattern to it, that may tends to indicate something. Other indications that they're having a heightened respiratory effort is if they're having nasal or nostril flaring with each breath as well. That indicates that they're working hard to breathe. You can also do this by listening. If the patient is talking, how is the patient speaking? Is it a normal voice? Are they speaking in full sentences or is it in two or three word sentences because they're so short of breath, they can say one or two words and they have to stop and pause and take a deep breath. 
Assess for altered mental status. Again, if the patient's conscious alert only times four, we know the patient is breathing adequately. Now, they may be having trouble breathing, but we know they're breathing adequately if they're conscious and alert. Short sentences versus long sentences. And again, listen for air movement from the nose and mouth. Completely unresponsive patient that we're assessing to see if they're breathing at all. Look, listen, and feel. Put your ear close to the patient's mouth and nose. See if we can actually hear air moving in and out. Feel with the ear next to the patient's nose. Feel the volume of air, of air movement. Again, we're going to do this if the patient's unresponsive. Again, if they're conscious, we know they're breathing adequately on their own. Feel the chest for equal and adequate expansion. We can actually place our hands on that patient's chest and feel them breathe, making sure that both sides of the chest are rising and falling equally, and it's rising in adequate amount. And again, again, this is very uh, important or very useful if the patient is completely unresponsive, especially in tra traumatic injuries where we suspect the possibility of a chest injury. We can also auscultate or listen with the stethoscope for breath sounds. We're going to listen in multiple locations on that patient's chest or side or even possibly the back. At each spot where we listen with that stethoscope, we want to listen to one full inhalation and one full exhalation as well. <clears throat> so, as we're listening, we're listening for a couple of things. A, or a few things. We want to make sure that we are hearing air move in and out of that portion of the lung. And then we're going to compare that side to the other side. Do they sound the same on both sides? Or are they clear and equal, say, bilaterally? Or do we have wheezing in the uppers bilaterally? That means on both sides. So we're listening, make sure we're hearing something air movement, we're comparing it to one side of, to the other, and we're also listening for any abnormal breath sounds as well, things like crackles, wheezes, or any other abnormal sound that we can hear with a stethoscope. So auscultation landmarks, the anterior lateral portion of the chest, and again, where we listen at or how many points we listen at is going to be kind of dependent on what's going on with the patient. If we just want to, if we're not so much worried about a respiratory issue, say it's a major trauma, and the main thing that we are wanting to check for on trauma is that lung sounds are there and they're equal on both sides. We'll just do a very quick four-point assessment. Upper, upper, lower, lower, and we're done with it. If the patient is having a respiratory complaint, we may want to do more detailed assessment of those lung sounds. So we may also move to the mid-axillary mid line on the chest just to make sure that we're listening to all aspects of those lungs. And again, with each spot, one inhalation, full exhalation, then we move to the other. When we Also, when we listen, we do like uppers, then lowers, we do upper on one side, then the upper on the other side as well, because we want to compare the two uppers together. Are they clear and equal on both sides? Do they have wheezing on one side compared not on the other side? Is one side diminished compared to the other side? So we do one side, 
same part, spot, but on the other side, then we move to the lower than opposite as well, again, because we want to compare the lungs to each other. So when we assess the patient's breathing, things that we're assessing for, we want to count the rate. We want to know how fast the patient is breathing per minute. We're also checking the rhythm. Is it regular does it, or does it have an irregular pattern? We're checking for quality. Is it normal or is it labored breathing? And again, we're also assessing tidal volume or the depth of each breath as well. Thing to note, if the patient is breathing can be adequate, I mean, they're moving enough air by themselves, but if the patient is working harder to breathe, they are going to be in respiratory distress. So again, just because they're breathing adequately on their own does not mean that they're not in trouble. They could be having respiratory issue, it's just not to the point where they're not moving adequate amounts of air. So signs of adequate breathing has a normal rate. It's within that normal range. Completely normal breathing is going to have clear and equal breath sounds bilaterally. So we hear air moving in and out in each lobe of the lung, and they it doesn't sound diminished. Adequate air movement heard and felt from the nose and mouth, meaning the patient has a good, adequate tidal volume. We got good chest rise and fall with each breath. And again, that's another way that we assess tidal volume in a patient as well. Inadequate breathing. If the patient is not breathing adequately on their own, it's going to lead to hypoxia. They're not moving enough air in and out of their lungs for the cells to use. So it's going to, it's going to turn it, it's going to lead to hypoxia. If breathing is inadequate, the brain is starting to get deprived of oxygen, the brain will begin to die within four to six minutes. And once that brain tissue is dead, it does not regenerate itself. Things that can cause inadequate breathing can either be respiratory failure or respiratory arrest. We'll talk more about that once we get into breathing problems. But anytime you hear a patient is in respiratory failure, that means they're not breathing adequately on their own. It's when the respiratory rate and or tidal volume is insufficient with failure. So that right there tells us if either one of those is poor, the patient's not breathing adequately on their own. Patients not breathing adequately on their own, we have to breathe for them or assist their ventilations with the BBM. So if a patient's in respiratory failure, they're breathing, just not breathing adequately. We still have to bag them with the BBM. Respiratory arrest is when the patient is no longer breathing. They're apneic. And again, apnea, not breathing. And what can cause respiratory arrest can be caused from many different causes, traumatic injuries, uh, a breathing issue, a cardiac issue, all of those can cause respiratory arrest. So again, respiratory failure and respiratory arrest patients, we have to ventilate those patients with the BBM. In both of those instances, the patient is not breathing adequately on their own. And patients with respiratory failure or arrest require immediate positive pressure ventilations. 
So again, if we realize a patient is not breathing adequately on their own or not breathing at all, we immediately need to start ventilating the patient with a BVM. And when we ventilate with the BVM, we are providing positive pressure ventilations. So indications or signs of inadequate breathing. Again, a poor rate. Tachypnic or breathing rapidly. And again, it would have to be pretty rapidly before it starts reducing tidal volume. More than likely, though, when we have to bag a patient because of rate, it's normally because of bradypnea or they're breathing too slow. If they're rhythm, they may have an irregular, irregular breathing pattern. Now that doesn't automatically tell us we have to ventilate a patient, but that should give us an indication that something is seriously wrong. Quality breath sounds that are decreased or absent. Again, that should tell us if we have absent or decreased breath sounds, they're not having much tidal volume with each breath so much so that we can't even hear the air entering the lungs. Depth, the depth of breathing or tidal volume is shallow or inadequate. And any above sign is a reason to artificially ventilate. I, I will go back with rhythm. That's not a guarantee if it has an uh, a irregular pattern. There are a lot of irregular breathing patterns, though, that causes it to slow down to the point where we do need to ventilate. So, again, the easiest thing and what I'm trying to harp on y'all is the two things we look at to determine if a patient needs to be ventilated or not is rate and tidal volume. If both of those are poor or either one of those are poor, we have to ventilate the patient with a BVM, positive pressure ventilations. Signs of inadequate breathing. If their retractions may indicate that the patient's having a harder time breathing, again, nasal flaring. If they're using abdominal muscles to help them breathe, or if they start becoming diaphoretic, they're starting to become sweaty, excessively sweaty, that's an also an indication that something is wrong in the body as well. Abnormal breath sounds. Again, these doesn't automatically mean that we're going to ventilate, but these should give us concern, try to figure out what's going on. Is there a treatment that we need to provide? Again, we've talked about Strider, that harsh, high-pitched sound heard upon inspiration typically is due to swelling at the larynx. Wheezing is a musical high-pitched sound heard on the typically the upper airways or up here, the upper portion of the lung. Typically, that's heard during exhalation. That is indicative of bronchospasms, bronchoconstriction, things like asthma attacks, emphysema, COPD, etc. Crackles, we tend to hear those in the lower lobes first. It's a bubbling sound, like uh, blowing air through a straw uh, that's in a cup, like kids. Put your cup in water and then blow into it. Your straw in the water and then blow into it. That's what crackles is, and it's fluid filling up their lung. May hear silent chest, where we just can't hear air moving in and out. And also possibly hear unequal sounds. The left side of the patient's chest sounds absolutely normal. We move over to the right side and don't hear any breath sounds on the right side. That could be caused from things like trauma. Infections can cause that as well. Large, widespread pneumonia 
or a pneumothorax. And again, a pneumothorax is where a, that portion of the lung is collapsed. Reduced minute volume, again, decrease in tidal volume or an inadequate respiratory rate. Again, those are the two things that we're looking at. Inadequate chest wall movement or severe chest wall injury. So things that we need to be on the lookout for when we're dealing with traumatic injuries that will directly affect the patient's breathing. If we're assessing the chest and we notice that the patient is having what is known as paradoxical chest wall movement, this is where a section of the ribs is moving in the opposite direction as the rest of the ribs. So as the rest of the chest is going outward during inspiration, that one piece is getting sucked in. And then when the chest goes back down during exhalation, that one piece is getting pushed outward. Paradoxical chest wall motion or movement is the telltale sign of a flailed chest, which is a very significant traumatic injury. Splinting of the chest wall, if they're holding on or we notice that the muscles are all tense and tightened. And again, one thing we should always be looking out for, especially if we suspect chest trauma, is asymmetrical chest wall movement. Well, one side is moving freely, but the other side is not moving much or at all. Also be on the lookout for those patterns as well. Irregular respiratory patterns. This can include, or what can cause this, can be head injuries, strokes, metabolic derangement syndromes, and toxic inhalation can all cause very irregular patterns. And if we have a rapid respiratory rate without clinical improvement in the patient's condition. So if the patient is breathing so quickly that it's starting to reduce tidal volume, again, that's also concerning. It may be an indication that we have to start ventilating the patient. So signs of either inadequate breathing or severe respiratory distress. Again, hypoxia can have fast tachypneic breathing, or it may be extremely slow as well. So if we notice the rate is poor, again, that's enough, enough justification on its own to go ahead and ventilate the patient. Again, nasal flaring, unequal or inadequate chest expansion. Again, that's giving us a look at tidal volume. Accessory muscle uses in the neck, diaphoretic skin, cool and clammy skin. Again, that's indicating possibly hypoxia, epinephrine's getting released. Occasional gasping breaths may be seen just before respiratory or cardiac arrest. Again, if they have occasional gasping breaths, those are what we refer to as agonal gasps or agonal breaths. There's no tidal volume really part of those. So both rate and tidal volume are very bad in agonal breathing, irregular rhythm, increased work effort of breathing, shallow or inadequate depth of breathing. Again, we can have cyanosis, intercostal, supraclavicular, suprasternal retractions. Again, using those accessory muscles to help get that chest bigger to try to draw as much air into the chest as possible. So again, when we're assessing the breathing, we want to look, we want to, first thing we want to do is make sure that the patient is breathing adequately on their own. If they are breathing adequately on their own, then we're looking for any indications of an increased effort. 
So again, first thing we're determining is, is this patient breathing adequately or not on their own? And if the answer is no, we're going to immediately begin to ventilate the patient. So deciding whether or not to assist ventilation. The EMT must decide whether the patient needs to be ventilated or we may just get by by putting on supplemental O2 where we're not squeezing a bag, we're just putting them on a mask or a nasal cannula. Neither the rate nor the depth alone is enough to ensure adequate breathing. Both of those, the rate and the depth, both of them have to be adequate before we can determine that the patient is breathing adequately on their own. And there is no exact way to determine the need to assist ventilations. Patient must be evaluated on an individual basis by looking at the respiratory rate and tidal volume. So again, it's very situational. It's going to be your judgment call dealing with that patient. Table 10-6, making a decision. Should I assist ventilations or should I put them on a non-rebreather or a nasal cannula or even possibly keep them on room air depending on what's actually going on with the patient? So during our assessment, we notice that the patient has an adequate rate and an adequate tidal volume. So both rate and tidal volume are good. That tells us that the patient's breathing adequately on their own. Since the patient's breathing adequately on their own, we don't need to breathe for them or assist their ventilations. So we're only going to have to administer supplemental O2 <clears throat> if it's indicated to do so. And again, supplemental O2 is non-rebreather or a nasal cannula typically. So our next patient, we're assessing our patient. We notice that the patient's rate is inadequate. So his rate's either too fast or too slow, but his tidal volume is fine. Again, both of them have to be adequate. In this case, he's not breathing at a good enough rate. Doesn't matter what the tidal volume is. He's not breathing adequately on their own. Again, both of them have to be good. In this case, rate four. So inadequate breathing, meaning that we immediately have to begin ventilating the patient with a BVM. In this case, the patient is breathing at a good rate. The rate's fine, but his tidal volume is poor. His breaths are too shallow. Again, one of them is inadequate, so he's not breathing adequately on their own. Again, meaning we have to immediately begin bagging the patient with a BVM. Again, both the rate and the tidal volume have to be adequate. If either one of them or both of them are poor, patient's not breathing adequately, we need to ventilate the patient with a BVM. So differences between, sorry, techniques of artificial ventilations. Okay, so we assessed our patient. We determined, hey, we're going to have to provide positive pressure ventilations to this patient. There are some different techniques that we may have access to. So the differences between normal spontaneous respirations and positive pressure ventilations. So again, if we are bagging a patient, we are changing the pressure inside that thoracic cavity. It's something to know. So there are significant physiological differences between spontaneous breathing and receiving positive pressure ventilations through a BVM or uh, so forth. 
These differences may affect other body systems or require other management techniques. So their breathing doesn't just kind of live out there on its own completely isolated. If we start introducing positive pressure inside the thoracic cavity, we can actually affect other body parts or systems as well. So air movement, the differences. In normal spontaneous ventilations, the negative pressure created by increasing the size of the thorax draws air into the lung. We've been talking about that for a few chapters now. Chest gets bigger, that creates a negative pressure inside the chest, sucks air into the chest. However, if we're bagging a patient or we're providing artificial ventilations, again, we're using positive pressure. That's where we're delivering ventilations through positive pressure. We are forcing air into the lungs by pressing it in there, positive pressure. So we squeeze the bag, it creates positive pressure, forces that air into the patient's lungs. Again, we do this through mechanical means. The most common way that we ventilate patients in the pre-hospital setting is through a BVM, bag valve mask. So it's going to have some effects on the airway wall pressure. Normal spontaneous breathing is not affected. Your body is designed to work with normal spontaneous breathing, so there's not going to be any effects on airway wall pressure. However, during positive pressure ventilations, the airway walls are pushed outward because we're forcing air down there. That's creating a larger space. We have to be careful because it's easy for us to overventilate a patient. Esophageal opening pressure. So during normal ventilations, the esophagus remains collapsed. So again, if you're not eating, chewing, swallowing, your esophagus remains collapsed during that time. So during normal breathing, your esophagus is collapsed, so we're not worried about air getting into our stomachs. However, with positive pressure ventilations, we're forcing air in there. We can actually cause the esophagus to open up, allowing air to go down the esophagus and to get into the stomach. If too much air gets into the stomach, this causes gastric distension where the stomach is starting to fill with air and you can have a very scrawny, skinny guy look nine months pregnant because of all the air that we forced into his stomach. And the big concern with that is if we fill it full of air, at some point it's probably going to come out of his stomach and it's not just going to be the air coming out, it's going to be whatever was in there as well. So we can actually induce vomiting by giving too much air. It can also reduce cardiac output as well, the cardiothoracic pump effect. It can reduce preload, uh, that air getting drawn back up to the inferior vena cava to the heart. This can actually alter that and reduce the amount of blood getting back to the heart. So we just need to be cautious. Positive pressure ventilations are perfectly safe if we do it properly. So normal ventilation does not adversely affect the cardiac output. But again, that positive pressure ventilations causes air to be forced into the lungs, eliminating the negative pressure, and again, can reduce cardiac preload, reduce the amount of blood that is reaching the heart to be pumped. A 
Again, so there are some differences that we need to be aware of. But again, if we are using proper technique, those are very minimal concerns. But technique is going to be very important to prevent those from occurring. So basic considerations of artificial ventilations. If we're bagging a patient, we have to ensure that we're maintaining a good seal on that mask. If we can't get a good seal between the mask and the patient's face, when we squeeze that bag, that air is going to escape from out from under the mask and it's not going to get forced into the lungs. So that is the most important step. It's also the hardest step is making sure the mask is sealed properly. The device that we're using, the BVM that we're using, it has to be large enough to ensure that we're delivering an adequate volume of air with each squeeze of the bag to properly inflate those lungs. And as a general rule, if we are ventilating a patient with a BVM, the BVM does need to be hooked up to supplemental O2 at the same time. There's one exception to that, and that's a new newborn, newly born infant. And we'll talk that towards the end of class. But for every other patient, if we are bagging them with the BVM, the BVM needs to be hooked up to oxygen, 15 liters per minute. So standard precautions, again, we should take standard precautions when we're bagging somebody. At the bare minimum, we are going to be wearing gloves during patient contact. If they have a dirty airway, though, again, we may want to wear eye protection or face protection to keep blood vomitus from getting into our mouths and eyes. And again, if they have a possible communicable airborne disease, uh, tuberculosis, COVID, we should wear in HEPA or N95 masks as well. So when performing artificial ventilations, it is necessary to continuously monitor the adequacy of ventilations. This is something that we are constantly keeping an eye on. If I'm in charge of bagging this patient, I am constantly looking at that chest every time I squeeze that bag. That is my pretty much my sole focus if I'm tasked with ventilating a patient. Because if I screw up, I'm going to kill my patient. Indications of adequate ventilations. If I'm doing my job properly by bagging these, the patient, this is things that should occur. I'm delivering the breath at an adequate rate. And <clears throat> sufficient rate. So I'm bagging not too fast, not too slow. Not only that, I'm not just randomly or rapidly squeezing that bag as fast as I can. With each squeeze of the bag, it should take me about one second to complete that squeeze. I should also be delivering a sufficient and a consistent tidal volume with each squeeze of the bag as well. And the rule here is you only squeeze the bag until you see chest rise. Once you see chest rise, stop squeezing the bag. If we continue to squeeze it after we get chest rise, again, all that excessive air is going to rush into the stomach and cause gastric distension. If I am bagging a patient because they're extremely hypoxic and their heart rate is either way too slow or too fast, once I fix that hypoxia, hopefully their heart rate is going to return back to its normal range. That could be an indication that we are successful with our ventilations. 
Same is true for their color. If they are extremely cyanotic because they're hypoxic, once I fix the hypoxia, their skin color should go back to normal. Indications that I'm not doing a very good job breathing for the patient and or I need to adjust my form. I'm either breathing too fast or too slow for the patient. We should give one breath every five seconds for an adult patient. When I squeeze the bag, I'm not getting good chest rise and fall. Again, that may be due to there's an obstruction somewhere, or I don't have a good seal on my mask, or I'm not squeezing the bag big enough, as uh, hard enough, not hard enough, but squeezing enough of that air to get chest to rise and fall. Heart rate continues to be out of whack, is starting to become more and more erratic or slower or faster. And again, if they were hypoxic, it should go away if I'm properly ventilating. If it doesn't go away, they remain hypoxic, they remain cyanotic, then that may be an indication I need to adjust, figure out what's going on, try to see what I need to do differently. So how fast we ventilate a patient, again, is pretty much going to be dependent on age. For our adult patients, we want to ventilate an adult patient at a rate of 10 to 12 breaths per minute, or that's roughly one breath every five to six seconds. For kids and infants, it's one breath every three to five seconds. We tend to go three seconds, so one breath every three seconds for a child and infant, one breath every five to six seconds for an adult. For newborns, it's one breath every one to one and a half seconds, so very quickly for a newborn. So if we are performing CPR on a patient, we are going to follow American Heart Association guidelines for our compression to ventilation ratio. So we're not worried about one breath every six seconds. We're doing for an adult patient, for an adult patient, it's every, it's two breaths after every 30 compressions. Remember with CPR, if you're by yourself, regardless of age group, it's always 30 to two. If it's an adult, Regardless if you're by yourself or two rescuer, it's always 30 to 2. And for two rescuer, for child and infant, it is 15 to 2. For newborns, neonates, it's 3 to 1. So they don't really discuss neonates in American Heart Association. But if you're dealing with a newly born, it's three chest compressions in one breath over and over and over again. If the patient has an advanced airway in place and they're in cardiac arrest, at that time, so we have the patient's intubated. The advanced or the paramedic has intubated the patient. At that point, we no longer worry about the compression to ventilation ratio as well. They're, whoever's doing chest compressions is going to do continual chest compressions. They no longer have to count. And whoever is squeezing the bag through that ET tube, they're going to go back to their ventilation rate. So we're going to squeeze the bag one breath every six seconds for pretty much any age group besides neonate. Other techniques we can use, we can use cricoid pressure. It's the technique of pushing the trachea into the esophagus, causing the esophagus to flatten. 
This is also known as a Selix maneuver. So when I was going through basic class, we were taught if we were ventilating a patient, we want to do this Selix maneuver to keep that esophagus closed to reduce the amount of air that's getting into the stomach. So again, this was once used to prevent gastric distension during positive pressure ventilation. However, it's not used anymore for that purpose. Newer studies suggest gastric distension is best prevented by slow ventilations, giving the limited volume to just make the chest rise. So again, if we are properly ventilating, going at a good rate, only squeezing the bag enough until we see chest rise and then stop squeezing the bag, there's no point of the Celex maneuver. We're going to prevent gastric distension without. Where cricoid pressure is still used in the field, is there are some situations where we still use it. The biggest one is for adult intubation. As your paramedic partner or your advanced partner is looking in that airway, trying to visualize those vocal cords, they may ask us as a basic to give them cricoid pressure. By pushing down on that Adam's apple that is pushing those vocal cords more posterior, making it a lot easier for the person intubating to see them. So again, cricoid pressure is very commonly used during intubation techniques, and that's about all it really is used for as well. So again, there's your cricoid pressure. Again, it's used to help visualize the vocal cords during an intubation attempt. The common way we give cricoid pressure is the burp technique. And what BURP stands for is backwards, upwards, rightwards pressure. And that is just explaining, helping us remember how we need to manipulate that Adam's apple. So backwards is pushing towards the patient's back. We're also pulling upwards to the patient's head and pulling it to the patient's right as well. And that's been proven to give the person intubating the best look at the vocal opening, the glottic opening. So if somebody asks you to burp their patient, this is what they're referring to, not grabbing the adult patient, throwing them on your shoulder, and patting them on the back. Another technique is known as ELM. It's not as common. It's known as external laryngeal manipulation. It's similar to burp, but the person doing the intubation guides the EMT's hands to provide the best view. So during ELM, us as basics, we're the ones holding the pressure, but our paramedic partner is looking in that airway with his other hand that's going to be on our hand, and he's just kind of guiding us. And we're trying to put that pressure and let him guide our hands until he can see the cords. He then tells us to hold it where it is, let's go of it, and then tries to complete that intubation. Not too frequently used. We tend to use burp more than ELM. Other ways to ventilate the patient, mouth-to-mouth -mouth or mouth-to-nose ventilations. You do not do this as a professional. The only person I'm doing mouth-to-mouth -mouth on is family members, and there's, only, there's some family members that I won't do it on. Again, I have to really like you and care about you before I would do mouth-to-mouth -mouth on you. Again, not used often in EMS. We have other pieces of equipment to ventilate a patient. Not only that, we're only delivering 16% oxygen to the patient with each breath. 
what does room air air have in it? How much oxygen is room in room air? Twenty one percent. Twenty one percent. So this is worse than room air. Barrier device may be used. Things like face shields. Forming, and when we do mouth-to-mouth, we do have to form a seal around the patient's mouth with our mouth, and we also have to pinch the patient's nose to prevent air from escaping out the nose. Mouth-to-nose ventilations can be used if the patient's mouth cannot be opened. Mouth-to-mask or BVM ventilations. These are, BVM is by far the most common you may do use a pocket mask in some situations as well, especially if you're out in public and somebody goes down where they keep their AEDs at, they tend to have pocket masks in there as well. So general considerations when using a mouth uh, pocket mask or a BBM, make sure that we are bagging the patient properly. So the rate and tidal volume is going to be based on the patient's age. The rate is often dependent on whether the patient has a pulse or an advanced airway or not. Again, if they're in full-blown cardiac arrest with no advanced airway, fall back to the American Heart Association guidelines or CPR class with your compression to ventilation ratio. Again, very important. We need to avoid over-inflation of the lungs. When we squeeze that bag, volume should be just enough to make the chest rise. Once we see chest rise, stop squeezing the bag. So mouth-to-mask ventilations, advantages to mouth-to-mask. It's very simple for an EMT, one person, to use a pocket mask. They can put two hands on the mask and ensure that they have a very good seal. And a pocket mask has a mask, but it still has a one-way valve that we blow into to deliver that breath. It eliminates direct contact with the patient. We have some type of barrier device where my lips ain't locking within patient's lips. My dad, I don't know if y'all know this, my dad's another EMS instructor here as well. He's the advanced instructor. He is so old, and I'll tell him to his face, they actually did mouth-to-mouth when he first started. As a professional, he was doing mouth-to-mouth on patients. He's been thrown up. He's got vomit in his mouth from a patient vomiting in his mouth as well. That I'd have been done, one done. First call that happened, I'm out. See y'all later. It's easy to provide an adequate tidal volume. You're blowing your air out of your lungs into the patient's lungs. It's very hard to, if the ages are roughly the same, if I'm ventilating another adult patient, it's hard for me to overinflate those lungs too dramatically because the amount of tidal volume that I have is what the patient's roughly going to need as well. And many pocket masks do have ports where we can attach supplemental oxygen to it as well. So again, that's what a pocket mask looks like. Has the mask, place it over their nose and and, uh, chin, two hands on the mask at all times if we're using a pocket mask, and then we breathe through that one-way valve. Again, that one-way valve, make sure that we're not accidentally inhaling patient's exhaled air, and if the patient does vomit, it's going to give us a little bit of protection as well. Again, it's a barrier device, so it's going to reduce possibility of communicable diseases. Disadvantages of mouth-to-mask, pocket masks. The mask is perceived by some EMTs as having an increased risk of infection. Again, the plastic 
It is going to protect us, but we are still having to get our mouths extremely close to the patient's mouth. Not only that, we're having to forcefully exhale to cause the patient's lungs to inflate. At some point, if we're doing this for long periods of time, we are going to get tired of breathing for that patient. And even with that oxygen port, it does not provide or allow for the highest possible concentration of oxygen to be delivered. No oxygen hooked up to it. It's still only giving 16%. We do increase that if it does have a port and we are able to hook up oxygen to it, but a VVM is still going to be better. So mouth-to-mask technique, if the patient does not have a suspected spinal injury, that means we can do the head tilt chin lift. So if we have a pocket mask, we do have op- if we do have oxygen available, again, go ahead and hook your pocket mask up to oxygen. We want to be at the patient's head, and we're going to place the mask over the patient's face, and we're going to form a seal. We're going to use a CE technique to seal the mask and to perform the head tilt chin lift. And there is a picture of the CE technique coming up. But as we're holding on to that mask, we're also going to rock that head back as well, making sure that tongue is not occluding the airway. And then we blow into the ventilation port until chest rise is visible. Once we see chest rise, stop blowing. And again, it's very unlikely if you are working on an ambulance that you're going to be using pocket masks. If we're on the ambulance, we're probably going to be using BBMs. This is if you're out out in the community, somebody goes down and you have access to a pocket mask. So there's that CE technique that I was referring to. So we're at the patient's head. We're providing the CE technique. So we're making the C with our thumb and our index finger. The thumb is going over the bridge of the nose. Index finger is wrapping around onto the chin. And then these three fingers right here are going to go on the bony part of the chin, just like this. And with a pocket mask, we always use two hands. So on both sides of the mask, press down evenly. That's going to be very easy for us to maintain a good seal. Again, rock that head back, blow into the mask. If the patient has a spinal injury, Remember, now we can't rock that head back. We can't do that head tilt chin lift maneuver. So we got to modify our technique as to not rock the head back. And this is going to be extremely difficult if we don't have an airway adjunct like an OPA or an MPA. And it may take two rescuers. Person is pulseless. They're in cardiac arrest we, from a traumatic injury. We were worried about a spinal injury, but we can't ventilate them by any other way. Do the head tilt chin lift anyway. We're more worried about the airway than we are the spinal injury. If that's the only thing we can do in order to save the patient's life, that's what we're going to do. As we're using the mouth to mask, we need to watch for ineffective inhalations. We want to make sure with every breath that we're delivering good breaths. We need to recognize and correct ineffective inhalations. If we didn't get chest rise on that breath, we're not going to wait another five seconds. We're going to try to figure out what happened and give them that breath as soon as we can. If ventilations are ineffective, it is necessary to immediately identify again and correct them again. So whoever is ventilating for that patient, even with a pocket mask, that is their sole priority should be. And we're watching chest rise and fall, everything with each and every breath 
that we're giving. And again, the hallmark of effective ventilation is visible chest rise. If we see chest rise with each breath, we're ensure that we're, we're breathing adequately for them. Pay attention to that and our rate, and we're good to go. And again, as soon as we see chest rise, stop blowing into the patient. We don't want to overinflate. Again, it's harder to overinflate with the mouth, with a pocket mask. It's not impossible, but again, that is one advantage. It is harder to dramatically overinflate like it is with the BBM. So if the, uh, if you're using a, a pocket mask, right? Yeah. And the patient's like quite a bit bigger than you are. Chances are you're not going to, I mean, is it, is it likely that you're not going to see chest rise if they're that much bigger than you? So if we have, you're talking about like a really obese dude? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So that's going to be, we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, later on in this chapter. But obese is a whole, whole other issue because, yeah, it's, it may be harder for us to see chest rise and fall. Not only that, they have so much more weight on their chest. It's going to take more volume and more pressure to lift that excessive weight. So if you are having to ventilate a really big dude with just a pocket mask, it's going to take a lot more effort than it would a skinnier, scrawnier guy. There's some techniques that you can use to mitigate that. Instead of laying them flat, you're going to raise their head just a little bit, raising their head a little bit just to shift some of that weight directly off that chest and downward a little bit is going to help with that. But again, it's still, even with the BBM, it's harder to ventilate a really, really big guy. But again, in, in the back of a truck, very unlikely you're going to use a pocket mask. You're probably going to be using this device right here. All right, any questions over anything so far? Again, we're going to go ahead and break just a little bit early. Natural spot, and this is, again, this is the device that we're going to use 95, 98% of the time. So we're going to take our time going through. All right, if there's no questions, we'll go ahead and break for lunch, and I'll meet everybody back here at 1300. So, again, the most commonly used piece of equipment that we're going to use in the pre-hospital setting to artificially ventilate a patient is going to be a bag valve mask or a BBM. So, components of a BBM. You're going to have the self-inflating bag. That self-inflating bag is the part that we're actually squeezing to deliver the breath. It's going to have a one-way non-rebreather valve. It's to make sure that the patient is getting pretty much pure oxygen and they're not rebreathing any of their exhaled air. A face mask that we're going to use to form a good seal. Intake oxygen reservoir valve that's going to allow us to connect to oxygen. A oxygen reservoir, there's going to be another bag that's going to inflate on its own once it is attached to oxygen. And we're going to have the tubing that also is going to allow us to connect it to oxygen. And here you can just see those different components. So we have the the bag that we actually squeeze, we have that oxygen reservoir bag that it will also fill up with oxygen uh, once we're, we attach it to O2. And then we have that non-rebreather valve and then our face mask right there as well. It's also important to note that BBMs do come in multiple sizes. So make sure that we are selecting the correct size, and that's mainly going to be based on our patient's age. 
Again, it's available in several sizes. Select the appropriate size and use only enough volume to cause the chest rise. It does not matter what size BVM that we are using, there's going to be way more tidal volume available in that bag than the patient is going to need. As an example, an adult BVM has about 13, 14, 1500 milliliters of air that's available once we squeeze the bag and we squeeze that bag fully. The average adult patient only has about 600 milliliter tidal volume. So even using an adult BVM on an adult patient, vast majority of the time, we are only squeezing about half of that bag. And again, that rule is we only squeeze the bag until we see chest rise. Once we see chest rise, stop squeezing the bag. If we have enough resources with us on scene, we should, should use two people to operate the BVM. One person may, holds the face mask on the face while the other person squeezes the bag. Again, that's going to be preferred. It's not very widely used, though, because normally we do not have enough hands on scene for everything else that needs to get done. If we have our BBM hooked up to oxygen, we are delivering close to 100% oxygen. So almost all of that air that we're squeezing into his lungs, almost all of it is oxygen. Some, depending on the hookups, adapters, and so forth, we may allow medication administration to be given through the BVM. We can actually squeeze in or bag in a breathing treatment to certain patients in certain conditions. And most of them are going to have some type of way where we can actually monitor entitled CO2 as well, or measuring that carbon dioxide that's in their exhaled breath. So when we're selecting the appropriate size BBM, not only do we need to make sure we got the right bag BBM, but we also make, need to make sure we have the right mask as well. And again, they typically go together. An adult BBM typically takes an adult mask. <clears throat> and again, we want for the this mask, the appropriate size, the mask is going to have a more rounded end on one side and a pointy end on the other. The pointy end always goes over the bridge of the nose. The rounder end goes over the chin. Just make sure that we're using the correct size mask that properly fits that patient. So if the patient does not have a suspected spinal injury, again, we're not worried about manipulation of the spine, so we can rock that head back and do the head tilt chin lift maneuver. From there, we're going to select the correct size mask and the correct size BVM. We're going to Position the mask over the patient's face, again, pointy end over the bridge of the nose, rounded in over the chin. And we're going to use that same technique that we used for the pocket mask, the EC technique, to uh, maintain a good seal. While one person, again, is holding the mask, the other person is going to squeeze the bag to deliver those breaths. Again, this is if we can have two people on the BBM. And that's what that technique is going to look like. And here you can see that self-inflating bag or that the oxygen reservoir filled with oxygen as well. So one person is holding the mask with both hands on both sides of the body, CE. And then the other person is squeezing the bag. Again, at that same time, we're rocking that head back as well. And I can tell you right now, this person bagging is squeezing too much of that bag. I can tell by just looking at the picture. Again, squeeze the bag till you see chest rise. After that, stop squeezing the bag. If we don't have two rescuers, one rescuer can perform 
the skill. He's going to have to use one hand to form a, a face, the seal with the mask. The other hand is going to squeeze the bag. It's going to be harder to maintain a good seal because we're only applying that pressure on one side. So it's a little bit more difficult, but this technique is going to free up that other provider to work on other items that need to be uh, performed on the patient as well. If the patient has a suspected spinal injury, again, in this case, now we can't rock that head back because we don't want to manipulate and worsen a potential spinal injury. So we can't do the head tilt chin lift. So in order for us to open the airway, we're going to have to use the jaw thrust technique. Whoever's, if we can have two rescuers on it, we can have one person hold manual C-spine, hold the airway or hold the spine in place while they're doing, uh, while they're doing the holding the mask and doing the jaw thrust maneuver at the same time. Again, we just do not want to manipulate the spine. So inline stabilization, if one person is all we have, you can actually use your knees to maintain spinal stabilization as well. So we put the patient's head in between our knees, clamp down on it so it doesn't rock back and forth or side to side, and then we use just the one-person technique. Two rescuers, again, we modify this any way we can. They're not doing the jaw thrust, but realistically, we probably would have to be using the jaw thrust in that case. Or again, an alternative as well. One person's holding C-spine with their knees, holding the mask while the other one is squeezing the back. Again, kind of no right or wrong way as long as you're able to ventilate the patient and you're not manipulating the patient's spine. Key points. If we are using an OPA, I'm sorry, if we are using a BBM, we should supplement that BBM with an OPA or an EPA. And we do need to get in that habit. And that's something that paramedics even overlook is if we're going to bag that patient, insert an adjunct as well. If they don't have a gag reflex, throw an OPA in there as well. It's going to help maintain, make sure that airway is open. If they do have a gag reflex and we're having to bag, go ahead and slap an NPA in there. Again, we must maintain a good seal on the bag, on that mask. If we're not forming a good seal and air is able to escape around the mask, none of that air is going to get into the patient's lungs. Again, make sure that we ventilate at the appropriate rate. Hyper too fast or hypo too slow ventilation can result in serious issues. Again, you can get in trouble by ventilating a patient too fast as well, blowing off all their excessive CO2, carbon dioxide, and that can make certain conditions a lot worse for a patient. So again, while we're, we're bagging, we have to focus on both tidal volume, making sure we get chest rise and fall, and paying attention to our rate as well. Again, pay attention to your tidal volume. Do not overinflate. Just enough to see chest rise. Once we see chest rise, stop squeezing the bag. Other type of devices, again, these are, this one especially is not commonly used. Uh, you'll probably never see it. They used to be a lot more popular and they've definitely gone away. So this is a flow restricted oxygen powered ventilation device or an FRO PVD. More commonly though, it's known as a demand valve. 
This demand valve is a manually triggered ventilation device where we will either hit a button or kind of squeeze a handle when we're ready to ventilate the patient. And that's going to do pretty high pressure force into the patient's chest in order to get his chest to rise and fall. Most of these demand valves also have a setting that they can assist a patient with their breathing that it triggers on negative pressure. So when the patient inhales, it feels that negative pressure and it triggers just to make sure that the patient's getting a deep enough breath as well. This is delivers 100% oxygen. It's hooked up directly to oxygen. It can be used by one EMT using two-handed technique to seal the mask. Very dangerous. We don't have that much. It can potentially be dangerous. We don't have that much control over it. And so it's only ever used for adult patients as well. We would never use a demand valve on a pediatric. So the technique, check the unit, the oxygen source, make sure we have plenty of oxygen. Open the airway, establish a seal with the mask. Again, we still have to do our head tilt, chin lift, jaw thrust, OPAs, MPAs. Should depress the trigger when we're ready for us to deliver a breath to the patient. We're, again, as we're pushing that trigger, we're constantly watching that chest rise. As soon as we see chest rise, let go of the trigger. And especially with a demand valve, it is very easy for us to overinflate the lungs. So pay very close attention to that. And that's what that demand valve looks like. Again, it's just a mask that goes over the patient's face and has a button or a trigger that we would push and it will deliver that breath for the patient. Again, we don't have very much control over it, so it's very easy to overinflate the lungs with the demand valve. And again, I have not seen one of these on an ambulance in probably uh, 12 or 13 years. So these have definitely kind of gone out of favor. Again, technique without a uh, spinal injury, one with a suspected spinal injury. Automatic transport ventilators. These are relatively popular depending on what type of service you're working for. It's a device used to man manually ventilate the patient. It's a vent. It's a travel vent. Advantages of keeping a patient on a ventilator. It can deliver a consistent rate and tidal volume, and that is going to be the biggest advantage. We can set a predetermined rate and a tidal volume, and we're kind of taking that human error, that human factor out of it. We know with each breath, it's going to the exact appropriate depth, and we're not overinflating, we're not hyperventilating or hypoventilating the patient as well. These hooked up directly to oxygen can deliver 100% oxygen. Since it does have such a precise tidal volume, there's a pretty low risk of gastric distension as long as we set the vent to the proper settings. And not only that, it's going to free up personnel. Somebody's not having to sit there and ventilate or bag this patient now. The machine is going to do that for us. That's a very common very simple transport vent, UMC, EMS. These are the transport vents that they have on some of their trucks, their county units, and their Fox truck as well. Has just a few settings on it. It has adult, child. We set that one first to whatever type of patient we have. That's also setting the inspiration time, how long it takes for that machine to deliver a breath. And then if it's a child, we use the orange numbers. If it's an adult, we use the white numbers. 
We can do breaths per minute, set it right here, and we can set the tidal volume as well. Again, very precise. Once we set it, we don't have to mess with it. Depending on the type of vents you have, they have numerous different settings. The most basic ones, though, are going to have right tidal volume and the pressures. There's many different types and brands out there on the market. If your service does carry a vent, you just need to make sure that you are familiar and know how to use it. So seek training and follow local protocols if allowed to use. The big disadvantage about a transport vent for us at the basic level is you can't do it with just a mask. In order for a vent to be used, the patient does have to have some type of advanced airway. So for us as basics, we're probably not putting very many patients on a vent if it's just a BLS crew. So again, they do need to have an advanced airway, intubated, king airway, eye gel, et cetera, before you can use a transport vent. And if a patient ever crashes, we take them off the vent and go back to manual BVM ventilation. So if they're in cardiac arrest, we don't use a vent, we do manual ventilation. <clears throat> so, talked about some different techniques about how we ventilate a patient if they're not breathing adequately on their own. Again, from here on out, we're pretty much going to talk about BVMs because that's what we use the vast majority of the time in the pre-hospital setting. So, again, not only do we ventilate patients that are completely not breathing, they're apneic, but we also, in certain situations, may assist ventilations on a patient who is breathing on their own. They're just not breathing adequately on their own. Again, poor rate and or poor tidal volume. So even if the patient still has spontaneous respirations, they're breathing on their own, <clears throat> there may be a need to ventilate the patient or assist their ventilations. Again, inadequate rate and or an inadequate tidal volume, two things that we look at. For us, the hardest part, but it's also the most important aspect of this, is being able to assess our patient and know, hey, this patient's not breathing good. We need to step in and ventilate the patient. <clears throat> the book says, or the slide says, the patient may be conscious and resistant or combative. Very rarely, highly unlikely, do we ever ventilate a conscious patient. I think the only times I can ever remember doing it was a vent-dependent patient that something was wrong and they were already hypoxic, but they're 100% vent dependent anyway. So we were trying to bag them and they were trying to fight us. But very rarely, if they are conscious, that's telling us there's enough oxygen circulating that the brain is getting at least some oxygenation. Makes sense what I'm saying? Very rarely would we ventilate a conscious patient. So the following breathing patterns would need to be ventilated. So we have a reduced minute volume due to inadequate rate or tidal volume. Again, ventilate at a rate of 10 to 12 breaths per minute for an adult, 12 to 20 for infants and children. So if it's an adult patient, one breath every five to six seconds. If it's a child or infant, we're going to give one breath every three seconds. Well, let's say the patient has a good rate. They're breathing 12 times per minute but their tidal volume is bad. So they're breathing at a normal rate, but each breath is extremely shallow. So hypoipnea, 
that's a low volume of breathing. So in this case, if we're having to bag this patient, we're not trying to correct or overcome their rate. Their rate's just fine on their own. So we just want to assist their breathing in their tidal volume. So each breath they take, we're just making them take it a little bit deeper. So we're going to sit there. We're going to have our BVM on this patient's face, and we're just sitting there watching them. The next time he takes a breath, we're going to squeeze the bag at the same time just to make sure that that breath he's taking is going to be deep enough. It's going to improve or correct that poor tidal volume. So again, the rate's fine. We're just going to deliver a ventilation as the patient inhales. And again, all we're trying to correct in this situation is tidal volume, not the rate. If the patient has an adequate tidal volume, but a slow rate, so they're breathing six times per minute, which is too slow, eight and under is where we really start getting concerned if it's eight breaths, six breaths, or so forth. <clears throat> but th with each breath, they have a good tidal volume. So that would be bradypnea, which is just a slower than normal breathing rate. So in this case, we're going to supplement the ventilations to bring the rate to 10 to 12 per minute or for an adult, 12 to 20 for infants and children. So again, we're going to kind of do the same thing. We're going to uh, breathe for the patient one breath every six seconds, five, six seconds for an adult, or one breath every three seconds for a child or infant. We just want to be cautious. We want to utilize patient spontaneous respirations and supplement additional at the correct rate. One thing that we never want to do is while the patient is naturally trying to exhale, us try to ventilate and squeeze air into the patient at the same time. So again, just do what we need to to make sure that the rate and tidal volume are sufficient. If we have a patient where the rate is too fast, so fast that it leads to inadequate tidal volume, that's tachypnea or rapid breathing rate. Again, we're trying to override both in this case. So we're going to ventilate a breath of one breath every five seconds, six seconds to for an adult, one to three seconds for a child or an infant, 10 to 12 or 12 to 20. And we need to try to coordinate ventilations with spontaneous ventilations at the appropriate rate. Again, we're going to have to pay very close attention. And when we squeeze that bag, make sure that the patient is spontaneously breathing in at that same time or try to. Again, if we try to fight against the patient's national, natural respirations, the patient is exhaling at the same time we're squeezing that bag, that BVM has like a pressure valve or pop-off valve that's going to pop, and it's going to make the most god-awfulest sounds you've ever heard in your life. So again, we don't want to fight against the patient's natural respirations. So try to time it when the patient inhales. We're going to squeeze and make sure that try to get that ventilation deeper as well. So key points, all ventilatory efforts should be accompanied by the administration of oxygen at 15 liters per minute. Again, if we are ventilating a patient with a BVM, that BVM needs to be hooked up to high flow O2, 15 liters per minute. Patient's too combative, it may be necessary to contact paramedic backup and only apply supplemental O2. If the patient is extremely altered, they need to be ventilated, but they are just so hypoxic and combative that we can't ventilate them. Try to put them on supplemental O2 and call paramedic backup. Back At some point, us sitting there fighting the patient, trying to get them to cooperate, 
we may be doing more harm than good. The patient is struggling and fighting. They're using more oxygen. Their body's burning through more oxygen, meaning they're going to get hypoxic quicker. So again, if we have an extremely altered combative patient that needs to be ventilated and they just won't stop fighting us, try to put them on a non-rebreather, contact paramedic backup where they can give sedation to make them stop fighting. Another device is a continuous positive airway pressure or a CPAP device. This is not, in this area anyway, is not routinely used at the basic level, but this is something that's becoming more and more popular. So CPAP is a form of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And CPAP uh, has to be used and is great to be used in awake patients that are spontaneously breathing but are having a very difficult time breathing, so they just need a little bit of help. CPAP works great, and where it's really designed for, where we're going to see the best outcomes is for patients that have congestive heart failure or any other type of condition that's causing pulmonary edema, which is the wet-sounding lung sounds from fluid entering the lung as the alveoli and so forth. That's where CPAP works wonders. From we'll have a patient that's extremely difficult time breathing to the point where it's almost respiratory failure. They're about to stop breathing. We can throw them on CPAP and we can see an almost instantaneous turnaround on the patient. And we use it pretty frequently and we have stats at UMC EMS to prove it that our intubation attempts and the need for intubation dramatically dropped once we introduced CPAP into the back of our trucks. Again, however, at this current time, especially in this area, CPAP is not generally used at the EMT level. It typically has to be an advanced or a paramedic that can use CPAP. But that's what that CPAP device looks like. It's just a mask that goes over the patient's face with very thick tubing. It either is going to hook up directly to an oxygen bottle or there's going to be a machine that's going to be there as well. So how CPAP works, <clears throat> positive pressure, again, with CPAP continuous positive airway pressures, there's constant pressure getting blown into the patient's airway. You measure that pressure in centimeters of water. This positive pressure helps inflate collapsed alveoli and improve oxygenation. So we have that constant pressure that's constantly blowing into the lungs, into the trachea, and so forth. That's going to ensure that those alveoli remain open if they were collapsed. It's going to help them reopen as well. And again, we're having more alveoli, more gas exchange is hopefully occurring. This is, again, a high concentration of oxygen at the same time. So hopefully, this is going to decrease the work of breathing. It's going to make it easier for that patient to breathe. And again, those patients that have pulmonary edema, the wet sounding lung sounds, fluid in the lungs, this constant pressure is also going to help push that fluid out of the lungs as well. And in the case of left ventricular failure, which is congestive heart failure. So it's actually going to get rid of the water, the liquid that is backing up into those lungs. <clears throat> However, in order for CPAP to work, you have to maintain an airtight seal. If we cannot get an airtight seal on CPAP, CPAP is absolutely worthless. 
So indications for CPAP, again, it's kind of bread and butter where it does wonders for is patients with congestive heart failure or any other condition that's causing pulmonary edema, fluid in the lungs. Other uses, it's not as beneficial, but can be beneficial are things like COPD, emphysema chronic bronchitis. It can even be used on asthma patients or patients that have pneumonia. Criteria. In order for a patient to be eligible or it's indicated to use CPAP, they have to meet this criteria. The patient has to be awake and able to follow our commands. If they are unresponsive or so confused that they can't follow our commands, they're beyond CPAP at that point. We're going to have to use other techniques to make sure they're ventilating properly. <clears throat> they also have to be able to maintain their own airway. So we can't use CPAP with OPAs, C, uh, NPAs, and so forth. They have to be able to keep and maintain their own airway. In order for CPAP to be indicated as well, they need to be in significant respiratory distress. They need to be pretty bad off. So their respiratory rate needs to be pretty quick, over 25 breaths per minute. Again, moderate to severe respiratory distress or even very, very, very early respiratory failure. Protocols in this region, we do not put CPAP on anybody under the age of 12. There are protocols out there that can will do it for a kid as, uh, up to or in a kid older than eight. So, again, just make sure you know your local protocols. Allowed to utilize CPAP, the EMT must be familiar with the equipment. Again, we in this area, we typically do not have protocols as for us as basics to put the patient on CPAP. But if we're working with an advanced or paramedic partner and they order CPAP, we may be the ones in charge of putting it on the patient. So again, make sure that we do understand if we are allowed to give it, make sure we know the indications, contraindications, and guidelines and so forth for use. So that was CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. There's also another device known as BiPAP or bi-level positive airway pressures. It's a device that is extremely similar to CPAP. The big difference is it allows you to set two different airway pressures. So with CPAP, it's a continuous pressure. We set one setting, patient is going to use that setting, that pressure to help them breathe in, but that patient also has to breathe out against that same amount of pressure. So for patients that have things like congestive heart failure, it's no big deal. For patients that have emphysema, COPDs that are air trapping, they're having a hard time getting air out of their lungs, that excessive pressure can actually worsen or may not worsen, but may make their problem not any better. Anyway, let's put it that way. <clears throat> so this is where bi-level has, or BiPAP has the advantage. You can set two pressures. You can set a higher pressure during inspiration to force that air into the airways. And then once that patient begins to exhale, you can set a much lower pressure so the patient does not have to fight as hard to get rid of that excess air. So it allows the patient more easily exhale as the exhalation setting is less than the inhalation setting. And not used often in EMS, that is 
starting to change. In the past, it used to be there, it wasn't a disposable piece of equipment. You would actually have to have a machine to do BiPAP. Anybody that knows anything about medical technology, it's crazy and expensive as hell. They have created disposable units where it does not require a machine. All it requires is a wall hookup to oxygen for BiPAP. So we are starting to see BiPAP become more and more popular in the pre-hospital setting. UMC EMS does not carry it. Uh, some EMS services in this region do carry C or BiPAP, though. So, again, if, you, if your service carries BiPAP, just make sure you're, you're aware of it. So, again, we got to be cautious when we're ventilating a patient, especially with a BVM, that we're not overinflating the lungs. And there are some hazards if we overinflate. If the patient's in cardiac arrest, perfusion is decreased by not allowing adequate preload. We're breathing too much. We're overinflating. Again, we're changing those pressures in that thoracic cavity, and we're actually reducing the amount of blood that's able to reach the heart to be pumped out with that next chest compression. That's the last thing you want to do in a patient that is, that is in cardiac arrest is to reduce the amount of blood flow circulating to the body. So, again, just pay very close attention to your breaths. Spontaneous breathing patients return uh, to the left ventricle can be reduced. Again, we're reducing preload in turn. That can actually drop and bottom out a patient's blood pressure. Again, too much, all that excessive air or some of that excessive air is going to go into the patient's stomach, causing gastric extension. Again, so if we're the ones that are in charge of ventilating, make sure we're paying close attention. Good rate. Good tidal volume, again, just enough until we see the chest rise. Once After that point, stop squeezing the bag. So special considerations in airway management and ventilation. If we run on a patient that has a stoma or a tracheostomy tube, so a stoma is a surgical opening in front of the net uh, through which the patient breathes. And there's some pictures of this coming up. A tracheostomy is the procedure that actually creates that stoma that is going to be down here in the patient's net. Stomas, the surgery may be temporary or it can be permanent. It's going to be dependent on the circumstances why they had that in the first place. And that stoma may have a tube inserted into it. And if there's a tube in the, inserted in through the stoma, it's known as a tracheostomy tube. Some patients will have a tracheostomy tube. Some won't have a tracheostomy tube, but will still have a stoma, that hole. And that stoma, one reason that they may get it is if the patient had a total or a partial laryngectomy, where they are actually removing a portion of that larynx where the vocal cords are. So that is a stoma. So at some point this patient had a tracheostomy. He's not, he doesn't have a tube inserted right now. However, patient does still breathe through this hole. He does not, may not completely at least, breathe through his nose and mouth. So when we ventilate this patient, do we ventilate the nose and mouth? No. We ventilate the stoma. That opening right there is what we're actually going to ventilate into. So in this case, this patient had a total laryngectomy. So this entire portion of his larynx has been removed. 
So in this case, air is only traveling in and out through that stoma. In this case, it does have a tracheostomy tube, I think. Maybe not. Whatever. This one is a partial. He still has the stoma, and the air is still moving in and out of that stoma, but some air is actually moving in and out through his nose as well. Again, the vast majority of the air is coming from here. So for us, we still ventilate through, if they have a stoma, we ventilate through the stoma. <clears throat> so if we need to ventilate through the stoma, we're using our BVM. If they have a tracheostomy tube inserted, if there's a tube in there, our BVM, all we do is simply take off our mask and our BVM is going to connect directly to that tracheostomy tube. All of these airway connections are universal. So take off your mask, put your BVM to the tracheostomy, and now you can breathe directly through that tracheostomy. If there's not a tracheostomy tube in place, get your BVM, place your mask over the stoma, Try to make as good of a seal as we possibly can and ventilate just like we would any other patient. We're just ventilating through the hole instead of the nose and mouth. So in this case, this patient does have a tracheostomy tube. Here's your BVM. All, again, all we do is simply remove the mask from right here. That universal connection will allow us to slide our BVM directly over that tracheostomy tube. This, they have another piece of equipment. This piece right here is actually an entitled CO2 detector. So they're monitoring the patient's exhaled air at the same time. Again, if they just have the opening, just get your mask, place it over the stoma and ventilate through that opening. Again, we want to try to find the smallest mass that we can find. The smaller the mass, the easier it is going to be sealed. So we may be using an adult size BVM with a infant or a neonate mask. So we may have to open two separate BVMs, the adult BVM for the BVM, the pediatric BVM, just to get the mask out of it. Again, the smaller the mask we can find, the easier it is gonna be to seal around that opening. It may be necessary to suction the stoma using a soft suction catheter. If they have a lot of mucus in that stoma or they have a tracheostomy too, they are very prone to getting mucus plugs where thick secretions cling together and reduces airflow. So we may need to go in there and try to suction out that tracheostomy tube. Also, while we're ventilating the patient through that stoma, pay attention to their mouth and nose. If air is leaking out of their mouth and nose while we're breathing through that stoma, we need to occlude that mouth and nose to ensure that the air is flowing into the lungs and not out. This just sounds absolutely gross to me, something I would never do. Mouth to stoma ventilation is not recommended. No shit, as it may expose the rescuer to respiratory secretions and droplets. We can use pocket masks and so forth, though, if we do not have a BBM. So infants and children, when bagging, we should place their head in a neutral position. Use padding under the back and shoulders. <clears throat> Avoid excessive volumes and pressures as well. Again, careful we're not just squeezing the bag as quickly as we can, nice and gently, only making sure that we get enough air in the lungs to see chest rise and fall. 
Again, make sure that we're using the appropriate size BVM. Don't try to use an adult BVM on a newborn. Use your OPAs, NPAs if indicated. Again, our rate is going to be a little bit quicker for children and infants, 12 to 20 or one breath every three seconds. And again, do not overventilate. Give just enough volume, just enough air to make chest rise. Once we see chest rise, stop squeezing the back. If we're trying to ventilate a patient that has spatial injuries, swelling can occlude the airway. Major trauma can cause tissues to start swelling. That includes your airway as well. So again, do what we can. Try to maintain that open airway. Use adjuncts, OPAs, NPAs if need be. However, remember, if we have a suspected skull fracture or mid-face trauma, NPAs through the nose are going to be contraindicated. We do not want to use those. And if they're bleeding heavily into the airway, frequent suctioning may be needed, constantly trying to suction to keep that airway clear. Perform body airway obstructions. Choking. If it's only a partial obstruction, the patient is conscious, they're moving air effectively, uh, they just feel like something's caught in their throat or coughing, but again, they're still moving adequate amounts of air. What we're going to do is we're going to apply high flow O2 to the patient, non-rebreather, 15 liters per minute. And then we're going to talk to the patient and encourage the patient to cough. Hopefully, we're going to let allow them to cough it up themselves. But as long as they still have, are having decent airflow at this time, we don't want to do any anything else other than instruct the patient to cough supplemental O2 because we don't want to do anything and accidentally cause it to become more uh, lodged in there. So supportive measures, cough, supplemental O2, transport the patient to the hospital. However, if air exchange is poor, they're unable to speak, unable to cough, unable to make noise, they're starting to turn cyanotic, now we're going to treat this as a complete airway obstruction. And how we treat complete airway obstructions is the exact same way that we learned about in CPR class. So for a child or adult, it's the abdominal thrust. For a conscious adult or a conscious child, or it's the Heimlich maneuver. We're going to get behind the patient, perform, perform the Heimlich maneuver on the patient. For a conscious infant, we're going to do five back blows, flip the kid over, five chest thrusts, and we're going to keep doing that. We're either going to keep doing the Heimlich maneuver, or we're going to do the five back blows, five back slap, or five chest thrusts. So we're going to keep doing that over and over again until one of two things happen. Either the patient coughs up whatever they were choking on, sorry, or the patient goes unresponsive. If the patient goes unresponsive, we're going to do CPR. It's, we start our normal CPR sequence with one additional step. We're going to look at the airway prior to giving our breaths. If we see the obstruction, we can go in there and try to get it out, but we do not perform blind finger sweeps. After obstruction is relieved, closely monitor the patient's breathing and pulse. And if they were choking, go ahead and just leave them on supplemental O2. At that point, the O2 is not going to be harmful for them. Dental appliances, if your patient has dentures, 
if the dentures are in there, in their, already in their mouth, and they're nice and secure and tight, leave the dentures in place. We're not going to try to get, take them out. Those dentures are actually going to make it easier. It's going to give it some more structure in their mouth. It's going to make it easier for us to seal the, the mask on that patient's face. However, if they're loose or they're broken, we do need to go ahead and remove them. So take the dentures out, set them aside. Again, problem there, concern is there. They're going to either break or slide off, and now they're going to start choking the patient. If you take a patient's dentures out in an ambulance, make sure you drop them off with the patient at the hospital. I don't know how many times I've gotten calls from family members of patients when I was chief asking where, family members asking where their grandma's dentures are because the crews took them out and can't find them now. And apparently they ain't very cheap either. So if you take them out, preferably in the house, just leave them in the house. If it's in route to the hospital, make sure we just leave them at the hospital with the patient. All right, oxygen therapy. So now, no longer talking about ventilating patient with the BVM or assisting ventilation and so forth. Now we're just talking about providing supplemental O2. Patients breathing adequately on their own, they just need a little bit more oxygen. So oxygen, it's a colorless, tasteless, and odorless gas. It's required by all body tissues. And remember, Oxygen is non-flammable, but it support, supports combustion. It's going to make anything, it's not going to catch on fire itself, but whatever is on fire, oxygen is going to make it burn hotter, burn faster, and really feed that fire. The oxygen that we carry in EMS is generally stored in steel or aluminum cylinders. Aluminum's the newer ones. They're less, they're not as heavy as the old steel ones are. So the cylinders that we carry oxygen in, there's different sizes of these cylinders and they carry different, amount, different amounts of volume. And our sizes of cylinders are lettered. So some common sizes is D. Pretty much D is probably the most common that we carry in with us to residents, but you have E cylinders, M cylinders, G cylinders, H cylinders, and the higher the letter, the bigger the cylinder is. So an H cylinder is way bigger than a D cylinder. So as comparison, D cylinder is typically what we take into the patient's house with us, and H cylinder is typically what is left in our ambulance, mounted in their ambulance, and piped through the oxygen ports in the back of our ambulance. Regardless of the size of the cylinder, the how we determine how much is in there is based on the pressure inside that tank. So a full cylinder, regardless if it's a D cylinder or an H cylinder, a full tank is 2,000 PSI. And there's gauges on these oxygen tanks, once we put a regulator on it, that'll tell us how much pressure is inside that tank. So the duration of oxygen flow, how do we know if we have enough oxygen on our trucks to make it throughout the entire shift, or more importantly, if we're doing a very long transport, we're transporting a patient from Lubbock to Dallas on oxygen. How much oxygen do we need to put on our truck to make sure that we have enough to get us there without running late out? So the only way to truly determine the amount of oxygen in the tank is to put a gauge on it and then read off the gauge. 
with that number, how much pressure is inside that tank, we can plug that into a formula to determine how long that tank is going to last. And that formula is right there. So it's the amount of the, in the tank, the PSI minus 200. So that 200 is what we call the safety residual. And what we're doing is we're just accounting for inaccuracies of the gauge. We know those gauges aren't going to be 100% accurate. We would rather overestimate or underestimate how much is actually in the tank than overestimate just to make sure our calculations, we have more than what we would actually need. So whatever's in that tank, we automatically take 200 off that reading. And again, that's just kind of built-in safety. So if your tank says there's 2,000 PSI in it, we're assuming there's only 1,800 PSI. Then we times that number by the cylinder constant. And that cylinder constant is going to be dependent on what size cylinder we have. Then we take that number, those numbers, and divide it by our flow rate in liters per minute. So again, down here is an example of those cylinder constants. So if we're using a D cylinder, we're going to use that 0.16 into our formula. If it's an H cylinder, it's 3.14. So again, take the take the tank pressure measured by the gauge and PSI minus the safety residual pressure that is always set at 200 times the constant divided by the flow rate expected to be delivered during or, or being delivered in liters per minute. And this will tell you how long that tank is going to last. So an example, we have a, uh, we have a full E-cylinder. So there's 2,000 PSI in our E-cylinder. And we have our patient on a non-rebreather mask at 15 liters per minute. So the formula, how we're going to do it. We're going to start off with 2,000 minus 200, which is our safety residual. And we're going to time that by the cylinder constant. Look back on that chart, an E-cylinder is 0.28. So 1,800 times 0.28 is 504 minus our flow rate, which is 15 liters per minute. So 504 divided by 15 is 33.6 minutes. <clears throat> so that's not very long. The E-cylinders are bigger than our portables, but again, it's not just a huge tank. You know how many times in my career I've used this? Twice. Going to Dallas on a long transfer and coming going to Seminole. This guy was on an ungodly amount of oxygen. He was a DNR patient going home to basically die. So most of the time, especially if you're working, let's say UMC EMS, again, I use that as an example a bunch. We don't give two craps about this. We're not with patients long enough to really worry about this. We just make sure our tanks have enough to run a call and, and then we're, we're good to go. Have a portal, a uh, spare, we're good to go. <clears throat> So safety precautions that we need to use when we're dealing with oxygen. Again, oxygen is not flammable, but it supports combustion. So we do not need to have any combustible materials contacting the cylinder or the components. We don't need to be smoking around the oxygen cylinders. These pressurized tanks, we need to make sure that we keep them below 125 degrees Fahrenheit. The regulators that we apply to them, make sure that they are properly fitting and they are in good working order. If we're not actively giving the patient oxygen, we need to turn off the valves to keep oxygen from leaking. An OSHA requirement, 
good practice is to keep cylinders secured while they're kind of like at the station. Keep them chained or secured in a manner that will prevent them from tipping over. And while we're putting on regulators or using it or so forth, you do you need to try to avoid placing your body directly over the valve. And the big, bigger danger to oxygen more than anything is just the pressure that it's under inside those tanks. That valve ruptures and air is able, oxygen is able to escape out of it, it's basically going to be a projectile and go flying across the room. So again, part of the equipment that we need in order to put a patient on oxygen, other than the oxygen tank itself, is a regulator. A regulator goes on this tank and it regulates or reduces the pressure in the cylinder to a manageable, usable amount. So it's taking that 2,000 PSI pressure, which is a lot of pressure inside that tank, and it is regulating it down to 15 liters per minute that we are able to give to our patient. High pressure regulators can give up to 50 PSI to a power demand valve. We do not use high pressure regulators in most cases. What we use are known as therapy regulators, and they deliver oxygen from 0.5 to 25, again, liters per minute. And there's going to be a gauge that will show you the volume and PSI of how much is left in your tank. So a couple of examples of regulators. The one on the left right there, that is the type that we, we attach to the oxygen units or oxygen cylinders in our truck. So those, the H tanks, we put that in there and it's piped to our oxygen outlets throughout the truck. The one on the right, right there, that is the one that we put on our portables. So it has a regulator built into it and it also has our flow meter built into it as well. And again, both of them have pressure gauges that tell you how much pressure is in the tank. For us, especially, they're kind of idiot-proof. Once it gets red or close to the red, that means we need to change it because we're going to run out if we keep using it. Another piece of equipment that we may use, again, kind of dependent on service, is humidifiers. So the oxygen that's in those cylinders is extremely dry. And if we're going to have a patient on oxygen for long periods of time, that dry air can be very irritating to the respiratory tract, especially if it's in the nasal cannula and it's blowing through their nose. It can cause nosebleeds and so forth on our patients. So a way around that to add some humidity to that air is to run it through a humidifier first. And it's basically a bucket of water that that air goes in through, picks up that humidity, and then is carried off to the patient. And the, the fluid, the water, is sterile water. We don't use, like, tap water. And again, humidifiers are generally used only for long-term oxygen therapy. Again, not very frequently used in EMS. Some services, long transport times, they may use them, though. And if we do have a patient that has a respiratory emergency like asthma, COPD, the, it's best for that patient to receive humidified oxygen. So if we do see humidifiers in the EMSA, and this is typically what we use, these are disposable. You'll hook this up to your oxygen regulator right here or your flow meter. We will use this for multiple patients, but once it gets too low, we'll throw it away and we'll put another one on there. This is what you typically see at a patient's house or in nursing homes if they have a concentrator, and this one's just refillable. 
Again, distilled water, sterile water, do not use tap water. So clinical decision-making regarding oxygen administration. So it used to be thought when I went through EMT school that oxygen was pretty much a harmless drug that we gave to patients. So anybody, regardless of complaint, pretty much got thrown on high flow too. Patient stumped his toe, he got thrown on a non-rebreather and transported to the hospital. Studies have come out that show that that is actually, in certain situations, giving a patient oxygen when they don't need it can be harmful for the patient. So that's especially true for certain conditions such as ischemic strokes, acute coronary syndrome, which a heart attack is a part of that. So we do have to be very cautious. And again, you can cause harm by giving a patient oxygen if they do not need it. So such patients should only receive oxygen if they have evidence of hypoxia or dyspnea, meaning they're complaining of trouble breathing or they look like they're having a hard time breathing, or if their O2 sats are less than 94%. So that's kind of our indication for oxygen these days and in a lot of situations. Now, there are other situations that we'll get into where we don't care about O2 sats are going to get placed on high flow 2 regardless. But as a general rule for a medical patient, they 94%, if their O2 sets are less than 94%, we'll give them supplemental O2. If it's above that, then likely we're not. Again, there are some exceptions. Any indications of shock, they get O2 regardless of O2 sets. Hypoxia, dyspnea, again, we don't care necessarily about O2 sets, these still are going to get oxygen. And for most medical patients, we are going to administer oxygen starting with the nasal cannula at very low flow rates, two to four liters per minute. So not a considerable amount of oxygen. But again, these are general guidelines. Your medical director has the ultimate say on the indications, contraindications, and so forth for O2. So indications for oxygen administration. Again, O2 sets that are less than 94%, or if we're unable to obtain O2 sets at this day and age, there's pretty much no excuse not to be able to obtain an O2 set. You should have multiple pulse oxes on your truck in most cases. So again, medical patient, O2 sets are less than 94%, automatically they're going to get oxygen. Again, maybe low flow, but they're going to get some type of oxygen in most cases. Again, if they have a complaint of dyspnea, trouble breathing, shortness of breath, or we note that they're in respiratory distress, it looks like they're having a hard time breathing, we're going to give them oxygen as well, again, regardless of O2 sets. If the patient is showing any signs and symptoms of shock, shock is just another word for poor perfusion. So pale, cold, clammy skin, slow or delayed capillary refill. We'll talk about capillary refill next chapter hypotension, low blood pressure, or altered mental status, they are going to get oxygen regardless of O2 sets. They can be sat 99%. We don't care. We're still going to give them supplemental O2. Or if they're showing any indications of heart failure as well, we'll give them supplemental O2. If the patient's in respiratory or cardiac arrest, they're not going to have good O2 sets, I promise you. But again, anytime we ventilate a patient, they're going to receive supplemental O2 as well. And again, if they're in respiratory cardiac arrest, they're definitely going to be receiving 
positive pressure ventilations. Again, signs of hypoxia and adequate respirations. They're breathing adequately on their own, but they're still showing indications of hypoxia, cyanosis, low O2 sats in most cases. Again, suspected shock. We'll talk, there's a, almost a full chapter over shock. And again, any other indication that your protocols dictate. So SpO2 set goals by condition. If we have a stroke patient or a suspected cardiac patient, again, we want to keep the O2 sats above 94%, but we do not want them to go above 99%. So 99 is the uppermost we want. We do not want stroke or cardiac patients to read 100% on our pulse ox. So for this, nasal cannula is normally the device of choice. And the reason being, what a pulse ox is actually reading is the amount of hemoglobin that is bound to oxygen. So it does not read or give us an adequate, re ad accurate reading on how much uh, excess oxygen is in the blood. That there's all the hemoglobin is bound to the oxygen, we're going to get a reading of 100%. It's not reading those free-floating uh, oxygen particles that are still in the bloodstream that cannot bind to the hemoglobin because all the hemoglobin's used up. And again, those free-floating, free radicals are can be dangerous to the patient, especially strokes and cardiac. So again, strokes, cardiac, we want it above 94, 94 to 99, but we do not want it at 100. Other medical conditions, O2SAT goal is 94% or greater. And again, for most medicals, we are going to use a nasal cannula. Again, oftentimes patients complaining of abdominal pain, we're trying to determine whether they need supplemental O2 or not. One of the things we look at is their O2SATs. If it's above 94%, they probably don't need supplemental O2. If it's below it, they are going to need supplemental O2. Trauma conditions, the, that O2SAT is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be 95% instead of the 94. So we increase it by one percentage point. And any times we're dealing with major traumas, especially non-rebreathers are typically our go-to, not nasal cannulas. If we're dealing with a pregnant patient that's over the 20th week gestation, we don't care about O2SATs. It's going to be, we want those O2SATs as high as possible so non-rebreather, 15 liters per minute for a pregnant patient over 20th week's gestation with a even semi-serious complaint for the oxygen to them. The reason being is for us, pre-hospital setting, we have no way of really monitoring or determining how well that fetus is doing inside mom. So the best way for us to take care of the fetus is to be overly aggressive in the mom. So we're going to flood the patient with as much oxygen as we can to ensure that the fetus is getting some of it. If the patient is suffering from an inhaled poisoning or a toxic exposure, it's a non-rebreather 15 liters per minute regardless of O2 sats. Again, for inhaled poisonings, it will always be a non-rebreather. This includes carbon monoxide. So if we pull up, or the fire department, we don't pull people out. We let the real heroes do that. If the fire department pulls a patient out of a burning house, they have suffered carbon monoxide poisoning. 
So in that case, we don't care about O2 sats. We're going to put them on a high flow non-rebreather 15 liters per minute, regardless of what that pulse ox indicates. Same thing if we have a patient that's huffing paint, that's an inhaled poisoning. They're going to get placed on a non-rebreather high flow, regardless of what their pulse ox indicates. Now, if we have a patient that has COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, there's two conditions, chronic bronchitis and emphysema. Those are the only two conditions that make up COPD. Remember, what's unique about COPD is they run on the hypoxic drive compared to us running on the respiratory drive. So since they have COPD, their stimulus for breathing is the amount of oxygen in their arterial blood. So conceivably, if we give a patient with on the hypoxic drive too much oxygen, we're actually starting to depress their breathing. We're slowing their breathing down. So we can actually cause a patient to stop breathing by overloading their body with too much oxygen if they have COPD. So our O2 sat goes for COPD patients is 88 to 92%. So that is quite a bit lower than what we would be on a patient that does not have COPD. Nasal cannula is going to be our device of choice in most cases. And again, the higher dosage or concentrations of oxygen has been proven to have adverse effects on patients with COPD. Again, some hazards of oxygen therapy. High concentrations of oxygen in the blood can actually decrease coronary artery blood flow in patients with cardiac disease. So if we have a patient that's potentially having a heart attack, we have an obstruction, a blockage somewhere in their coronary arteries. Our goal in treatment is we're going to give them a medication called nitro to dilate and make those blood vessels bigger to allow more blood flow to that area of the heart, past that blockage. Well, if we give that same patient too much oxygen, we're having the exact opposite effect. We're constricting those coronary arteries, possibly making that heart attack even worse. So again, careful with heart attacks, patients or coronary artery disease or any uh, cardiac related complaint. Again, the goal is 94% to 99%, but not 100. High concentrations of oxygen can also increase tissue damage in stroke victims. And you can also create oxygen toxicity. This is very rare, but can happen over long periods of time. This can cause the collapse of alveoli and actually cause the patient to go into seizures. Again, us in the pre-hospital setting, we're not going to see oxygen toxicity, but the coronary artery effect, the damaging of reperfused tissues is something that we can see and that we should take steps to avoid. Damage to the retina can occur in premature newborns with excessive oxygen administration. And like we previously, like I just talked about, <clears throat> we can actually cause respiratory depression in COPD patients. Again, they run on the hypoxic drive, so their stimulus for breathing is the amount of oxygen in the arterial blood. So our oxygen administration procedures, how we're going to put a patient on oxygen. First thing, we need to make sure that we are selecting a container that actually has oxygen in it and not some other type of gas. Uh, oxygen cylinders are typically have green on them somewhere. 
They also make medical air as well that typically comes in a yellow bottle. So if your service carries more than one type of gas, make sure you're grabbing the correct type of gas, oxygen. First thing we're gonna do is we're gonna open and shut the valve for one second to remove any dirt and debris over the connection sites. We call this cracking the cylinder. So we'll just get our bottle, turn it open real quick and then right back off. And all we're doing is blowing that dirt and debris out. And there's pictures coming up too. We're gonna place the yoke of the regulator over the valve and tighten. We wanna make sure that there is a washer on that regulator. It's properly placed, and when we tighten down the regulator on a portable oxygen tank, we only do it by hand tight. We do not use tools on portable tanks. After we have our regulator on, we're going to open our valve half a turn to check the pressure. Now it's turned on. Attach your tubing to the regulator. Set your flow rate liters per minute. Again, this is going to be dependent on what's going on with the patient, what type of device we're using on the patient as well. And after oxygen is flowing to the device, then we can apply the device to the patient. So again, starting oxygen, we grab this a brand new portable tank. First thing we're going to do, if it's new, brand new, never been used, they're probably going to come sealed. So first thing we're going to do is we're going to remove the seal off of our portable tank. The next thing that we're gonna do is crack the cylinder. So this is where oxygen is gonna come out. We're gonna point this away from everybody and we're just gonna very quickly turn on the cylinder and then turn it right back off. And again, all we're trying to do is remove any dirt or debris from that open. Once we crack the cylinder, we turned it back off. Now we're going to put on our regulator. And these regulators will only go on one way. They have a pin index safety system you see these two holes right here, inside that regulator, there's also pins. So this regulator will only go on this tank one way. So just pay attention to what you're doing to make sure the holes line up. Again, then we're gonna screw down that T-handle until it is only hand tight. Do not use tools, do not over tighten. Once our regulator is firmly in place, we're gonna turn on our cylinder. Only turn on the oxygen cylinder a half a turn. It's not like it, like a propane or so forth where you have to keep turning it and turning it to make sure it's fully open. It's either all the way open or all the way off. So half a turn is all you need. You're gonna piss off your partner if you turn it all the way around and then they are the ones that have to go back and turn it off because it's gonna confuse the hell out of them. So again, half a turn is all that's needed. Once we turn on that valve up here, now we're looking at our regulator and we're reading how much is in the tank. Brand new tank, it's gonna have about 2000 PSI. So we tanks open, gauge has got a good reading. Now we're gonna hook up our oxygen to the tank. Hook up your oxygen tubing, and now we're gonna set our flow rate. And there's gonna be a dial right here. You can see through that window, it says zero. That's our liters per minute. Hook up your, your equipment, spin the dial until whatever we want it set at. In this case, they're using a non-rebreather. So it's probably gonna be at least 12 to 15 liters per minute. We have oxygen flowing to the piece of equipment now or our device. Now we can go ahead and attach that device to our patient. Especially with a non-rebreather. We never leave a non-rebreather or put a non-rebreather patient, non-rebreather on a patient 
if oxygen is not flowing to it. So oxygen needs to be flowing to the device before we put the device on the patient. Terminating oxygen therapy, we need to take the patient off of oxygen. Again, if that device is on the patient, by textbook, oxygen needs to be flowing to the device. So first we would remove the, the mask off the patient, then we would turn off our leaders permitted or regulator. Turn off the oxygen regulator flow meter, and then turn off the valve. We're basically kind of repeating or going backwards for those steps. So we turn off the valve on top, then we're going to bleed the pressure that's left in that valve by turning on the flow rate, letting all that pressure drain off, and then we turn the regulator back off, the flow rate back off. And with these portables, we leave the regulator on those portables at all times. So the only time that we ever have to change regulator, add or, or put on a regulator on a no two bottle is when we're changing tanks because our portable ran empty. But in our airway bags or on our stretcher, the regulator is already gonna be in place for us. Transferring oxygen source. So if we have patients on our portable tank, we're gonna move them from our portable to our truck tank. Have the new oxygen supply turned on, ready to go. And again, according to the textbook, if the device is on the patient, oxygen needs to be flowing to it. So we would lift the mask up, unplug our oxygen from our portable, plug it up to our truck tank, and then put our mask back on. Y'all really think that happens in the real world? No, they're gonna be off oxygen for like 0.2 seconds. So, and you'll notice it, they'll just quickly switch it over without ever removing it from the patient. Say that though, textbook is what the National Registry is gonna be off of. So according to this, you have if the, if the device is on the patient, it needs to have oxygen flowing to it. So again, take the mask off, switch the oxygen, then reapply the mask. Okay. Any questions on anything we've covered so far on chapter 10? So oxygen delivery equipment that we may use on a patient to provide supplemental O2. So the two most common oxygen delivery devices in EMS are a non-rebreather and a nasal cannula. And again, when we're talking about supplemental O2, we're not talking necessarily about BVMs providing or assisting with ventilations, positive pressure ventilations, or what have you. We're talking about how we're just administering supplemental O2. Patients breathing adequately on their own, they just need more oxygen. So non-rebreathers, nasal cannulas are by far the most common. There are other devices out there, and it is your responsibility to know what other devices your service carries and how to properly use them. And we'll talk about other devices as well. And you also need to know and follow your local protocols on selecting and using when it's indicated and so forth, the oxygen delivery devices. So again, very common one that we use is a non-rebreather mask, which is abbreviated NRB. It's used to deliver high concentrations of oxygen. And if we place a patient on a non-rebreather, we're delivering approximately 90% oxygen. Again, compare that to the 21% they're getting on room air, we're dramatically increasing the amount of supplemental oxygen. 
Nonner breather has valves to allow exhaled air to escape and to not be rebreathed by the patient, hence the name non-rebreather. Non-rebreathers do come in multitudes of size. They have infant non-rebreathers, child non-rebreathers, and adult non-rebreathers as well. For a non-rebreather, it's high flow O2, so 10 to 15 liters per minute. 15 liters per minute is kind of generally where most people select it. Regardless of how much on it, you just need to ensure that the reservoir bag stays inflated. If it's not enough oxygen to keep the reservoir bag inflated, you need to give uh, crank it up higher. And we need to inflate that reservoir bag before applying the non-rebreather to the patient. If for whatever reason the patient cannot tolerate that mask, putting that mask on their face causes them anxiety, causes them to freak out, or especially if it's a younger kid, they may not like that mask, we need to deliver the oxygen by blow-by, uh, using the blow-by technique. So instead of putting the mask on, putting the elastic around their face, we're just going to hold that non-rebreather as close to the patient's face as we can get it, where they will actually tolerate it. And again, this is especially useful in kids and infants. So there is your non-rebreather mask. Again, it's a mask and has this reservoir bag right there. And again, we need to ensure that this reservoir bag stays inflated. So how we fill that reservoir bag, especially brand new out of the package, you come, the bag comes folded up, it's probably not going to self-inflate once we hook it up to oxygen. So we need to inflate it before we put it on the patient. How we do that is we just place a finger or a thumb right there where the bag is connected to the mask. Put your finger over there. That's going to redirect all of that oxygen flow down into the bag, causing the bag to inflate. Again, that's what it, a cutaway view looks like. Oxygen comes in through that reservoir bag. Patient takes a breath. That oxygen gets sucked into the patient's lungs. Special notes on the non-rebreather. Again, we're going to follow those procedures that we previously talked about. Again, we have to fill that reservoir bag prior to us placing it on the patient's face. Apply the mask, put those elastic, elastic straps behind the patient's head, and then tighten down those elastic straps to hold it in place. And these non-rebreathers also have a soft, bendable metal piece that goes over the bridge of the nose. We can bend that and mold that to the patient's nose. That's going to help keep it in place, and it's going to prevent some of that oxygen from escaping as well. Another very common piece of equipment is the nasal cannula. Nasal cannulas are even probably more popular than non-rebreathers. Nasal cannula is used to deliver lower concentrations of oxygen. Depending on what we set the, the flow rate to, it can deliver 24 to 44% oxygen. Nasal cannula consists of uh, two soft plastic prongs that are connected to the tubing. Those prongs are then inserted into the nose. And the flow rate that we set a nasal cannula at is anywhere from one. To six. 
Any higher than six, it can be very irritating and uncomfortable for the patient. So nasal cannulas, you do not set the flow rate higher than six liters per minute. And that's what that nasal cannula looks like. Again, it's just two prongs that goes inside the patient's nostrils. Pay attention on this picture, though, how that cannula, that tubing is ran. It goes into the nose, then it goes around the patient's ears, and it tightens down here below the chin. One thing that you see, especially basic students try to do, is they try to put it on the patient, and then they tighten it on the back like the patient's wearing a bandana. That is not the appropriate technique. Again, around the ears, and it tightens below the chin. Again, cutaway view of that nasal cannula. Special notes in the cannula. Those prongs have a little bit of a curve to it. You want those curved prongs pointing downward in the patient's nose. Again, proper securing of the tubing. It goes around the ears, tightens below the chin. We want to be cautious not to over tighten. There's a sliding piece of hard plastic that we pull up to tighten it. You don't want it extremely tight. You just want it tight enough where it's not going to slip off around the patient's ears. And again, with a nasal cannula, do not tighten it, or I'm sorry, do not administer more than six liters per minute. Again, that's very irritating to that nasal passageways. Again, there's that nasal cannula. Kind of see it in the picture. Those prongs are curved. Again, you want those prongs curving downward. Other oxygen delivery devices. Again, these are not as common, but your service may use them. You can have just a simple face mask. It looks just like a non-rebreather. It just doesn't have that extra oxygen reservoir bag down here. A simple face mask delivers 60% oxygen, and the flow rate for a simple face mask is 6 to 10 liters per minute. You can also have a partial rebreather mask. These look identical to a non-rebreather, but it has a two-way valve that allows the patient to breathe out about one-third of his exhaled air, meaning that they are rebreathing some of their exhaled air. So instead of that 90% oxygen they're getting with an NRB, they're only getting 35 to 60%. And the flow rate for a partial rebreather mask is 6 to 10. So there is a simple face mask. Again, it looks just like a non-rebreather, except for it doesn't have that reservoir bag down here. And again, that's a partial rebreather. And again, it looks identical to a non-rebreather. So make sure you're reading your packaging. I don't know of any service that carries partial rebreathers. We all carry non-rebreathers in this area. Another piece of equipment that's not routinely carried on EMS trucks, but we may do transfers or go to nursing homes that a patient is wearing one of these, one of them is known as a Venturi mask. It's a low flow system that provides precise concentrations of oxygen through an entrainment valve connected to a face mask. So with a Venturi mask, you put these different pieces in there and it's giving, again, precise concentrations of oxygen. You can set it for 50% oxygen concentration, et cetera. 
These valves, you set it at adjustable or variable liters per minute, dependent on what type of system you have or concentration you're trying to accomplish. Again, these venturi masks have different settings up to 50% of pure oxygen. And again, the valves can be changed to deliver precise concentrations at preset flow rates. And again, we typically see these in, in this area anyway, in nursing home patients and COPD patients are the ones that are notorious for using venturi masks. And that's what that venturi mask looks like. And again, this colored piece right here, that is how you adjust the concentration of oxygen. You can take out the yellow piece, put in a different color piece, and there are color coded to correspond to what type of concentration of oxygen you are trying to use. And again, these are not, in this area anyway, are not routinely carried by EMS. Tracheostomy mask used to deliver aerolyzed medications or oxygen to a patient with a tracheostomy tube, and they deliver a low concentration of oxygen, typically less than 50%. So again, if they have that stoma and they need supplemental O2, they're not going to be wearing a mask. They're going to be wearing that tracheostomy mask. So again, it's specifically designed to go over that open. This one also has a Venturi mask kind of designed into it where we can change out that color-coded piece right there to alter the concentration of oxygen that the patient has received. So key points in oxygen administration. We do not solely rely on the pulse ox reading. That's not gonna be the only thing that we look at to determine whether this patient needs supplemental O2 or not. That's just another tool in our toolbox. We need to do a complete full assessment of the patient, looking at that patient as a whole before we determine if the patient needs oxygen or not. So we treat the patient, not just the pulse ox or not just the monitor. And we should never withhold oxygen from a patient that we feel is going to benefit from it simply because they have a good pulse ox reading. Again, it is a judgment call based off your assessment. So in summary, without an open airway and adequate ventilation, patients rapidly deteriorate and die. Again, it doesn't matter what's wrong with them, what other type of treatments that we perform. If we don't ensure that the airway is open, the patient is breathing adequately on their own, the patient's going to die. EMTs must quickly recognize an inadequate airway and breathing and immediately intervene to correct it. And oxygen therapy is used to reduce, eliminate, or prevent hypoxia from occurring in patients. Okay. Any questions?